In this episode, I'm once again joined by Daniel Ingram, meditation teacher and author of Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha. In this episode, Daniel responds to Bhikkhu Analyo's recent article in the May 2020 edition of the academic journal Mindfulness, in which Analyo argues that Daniel is delusional about his meditation experiences and accomplishments, and that his conclusions to quote, pertain entirely to the realm of his own imagination. They have no value outside of it. Daniel recounts that Analia revealed to him that the article was requested by a senior mindfulness teacher to specifically damage Daniel's credibility. To quote Daniel, quoting Analia, we are going to make sure that nobody ever believes you again. Daniel responds to the article's historical, doctrinal, clinical, and personal challenges, as well as addressing the issues of definition and delusion regarding his claim to arhatship. Daniel also reflects on the consequences of this article for his work at Cambridge and with the EPRC on the application of Buddhist meditation maps of insight in clinical contexts. So without further ado, Daniel Ingram. Daniel Ingram, welcome to the podcast. Delightful to be here. Thank you so much for uh, taking on what is going to be something of a tedious project, <laughs> but uh, but should be fun and hopefully bring up a lot of issues that are relevant and important and historical and cultural and personal. So, yeah. Yeah, in the May 2020 publication Mindfulness, Bhikkhu Analio wrote an article in which you were uh, featured front and center. The article was called Meditation Maps, Attainment Claims and the Adversities of Mindfulness. Now, perhaps you could give a little bit of background as to, as to that article and the situation and why it is that we're having this conversation today. Yeah, so actually back in July 17th of 2019, uh, Biko Analio wrote an article called The Insight Stages of Fear and Adverse Effects of Mindfulness Practices, which all appeared in Mindfulness. And it's, um, it's an article that essentially says the, the stages of insight in the Theravada tradition do not apply and have no relevance for mindfulness. And he, he sort of walks back and forth this kind of complicated line between an argument that is basically mindfulness is not vipassana, insight stages don't apply to practices that are not vipassana almost by definition, like a sort of almost like a categorical or a, um, article, I mean, argument. And he, it, and so since I talk a lot about the stages of insight and very interested in the stages of insight and um, plan to do lots of research on the phenomena that um, we may call the stages of insight sometimes, or some of us do, and how to incorporate that basic technology into clinical practice, I wrote a long response to that. And I sat on that response actually for about five months because it was pretty critical. And I thought something about this feels off. I'm, I'm not going to publish this yet. And I talked to, I bounced it off a number of friends, in particular, a Tibetan nun friend of mine, who's also a very scholarly and also a wise practitioner. And she said, you know, how about you reach out to Bhikkhu Analio first and give him a chance to sort of respond and talk about it and then see if you want to publish it, what you want to do with it and do that. So finally, in May, I think it was, or maybe late April, I reached out to him and said, hey, I read your article on fear and mindfulness, and I wrote this response, and uh, I, I was wondering if you would want to take a look at it and just see what you think of it and have a chance to respond to it, because I, I, I don't want to you know, start a war, basically, but, um, or a, a small skirmish, but I, I would like to address some of these points. 
And uh, so when I did that, he said, oh, it's funny, you should ring. Uh, very shortly, I have an article coming out in Mindfulness that's actually directly um, taking down you, because I was asked by, well, first he said a number of mindfulness teachers, and later he corrected to a single mindfulness teacher, so I actually don't know which is true, but um, that uh, he was asked to, to basically take me down. So he was asked to personally take me out because they thought I was dangerous and, and unhelpful and harming people. And they, uh, they, this mindfulness teacher, who apparently is a senior mindfulness teacher, uh, who, who he didn't say the name of, asked him to critique my book and write uh, the article. And he said, oh, and we've even got your, your name in the keywords. And we use your name in the article such that if people search for you on Google, they will find you and that you will be instantly discredited as um, being a fraud with no insight or no value to the world of meditation. Uh, and this is what they will find on Google searches. And that's why we have your name in the keywords. Did he say all of that? Or are you departing from what he said and adding no, the consequences? He, he, he said all those things. So in a, By email or on the phone? No, uh, uh, exchange with me. And then we had a long email exchange after that, which we'll get into, where I clarified a bunch of views of his and like, and said, basically, why me? Like, plenty of people talk about the stages of insight other than me. And I actually have his email reply here somewhere, if I can find it. Um, let's see here. Uh, and um, let's see here. He said that um, it was essentially because I claim attainments. So, and I asked why, you know, I said, like, Jack Kornfield talks about insight stages, and Joseph Goldstein talks about insight stages, and Vipassana genres and other things he doesn't like. Like, you know, they're way more popular than me. Why were you picking on me? And he said, none of the two teachers you mentioned come, I'm reading directly now, uh, come out with claims anything close to what you have done. Uh, there is thus no need for me to target them indirectly. My concerns are seriously misleading descriptions of insight knowledges combined with false claims to high attainment and mistaken allegations of the supposed dangers of mindfulness that are based on the two items just mentioned. This matches your case, not theirs. Well, how do we stand using email quotes? Uh, actually, I asked him specifically um, in an email, can I quote your emails? And he said, yes, please feel free to quote my emails. So I have his explicit written permission. Then we, we had further exchange and he clarified that a number of points. And one is that he does not believe in perennialism. So he does not believe that insight stages um, could possibly apply to any other tradition. He thinks the tradition's attainments are utterly separate, that there's not overlap or crossover. He doesn't believe in you know, universal mystical truths. He thinks that these are tradition specific. And I can read you the exact quotes if, if you want that. But, and, I, and I said, are you sure this is true? And I said it to an um, article, um, and, sorry, I sent him an email and he said, yeah, that's true. And so I was like, wow, that's interesting. I think most people are not really expecting that, that his argument is that basically Theravadan insight stages essentially by definition cannot apply to anybody who's not a Theravadan insight practitioner, QED, right? And then, and, um, and so then a lot of his arguments, once you understand that point, which is a point I think that a lot of people might have sort of missed, then a lot of what he's saying makes some kind of sense because if, you would, if that's your view, well, then I, I can see how he proceeds. And so I, I must say, I was kind of taken aback by this whole thing. I wasn't expecting to be personally attacked. And, and I thought I was being kind of nice. And before I, I, you know, put something out there that attacked him, that he would, you know, he sort of pr did a preemptive strike almost 
<laughs> and I was like, well, that's that's challenging. And then the article came out. And so I've gotten about six months to look it over. And I've wrote it, written a number of responses. I initially wanted to write my typical point by point, which people who know my work are familiar with, where I basically take it line by line and give it my all and give my full arguments. And then um, Springer and Mindfulness refused to sell the rights to the entire article. So in fair use, you cannot quote an entire article line by line. I wanted to give Biko Analio his full due and his re full rhetorical force, but um, Springer and Mindfulness didn't allow me to do that. So uh, then I summarized all of his points as fairly as I could and wrote my long response. And then um, I started off actually then relatively recently as I thought, well, maybe we'll publish some version of this thing. I actually sent uh, a letter to mindfulness because mindfulness, it's interesting. They have a number of um, points about uh, in their rules for they say um, case studies require ethics approval by an IRB. And I pointed that out. And they also um, say in their rules for submission for authors that you, you can't do any personal attacks on an individual, that you can't do anything that's a personal attack. That's you're not allowed, or you know, might be construed as a personal attack. You're not allowed to do that. And, th and this was a personal attack. And then there's something called the Goldwater Rule. And the Goldwater Rule is the APA basically said that psychiatrists and people diagnosing people should not be engaging in the in the diagnosis of mental health issues of public figures that they haven't met or examined. Well, A, this is not psychiatry, so I don't know how the rule applies, but B, Biko Analia was not a psychiatrist, so the rule might not actually apply. But the guideline in terms of an ethic that maybe if you're going to be diagnosing people as delusional or dissociated or grandiose or something about their practice, maybe you should have met them. And he had never met me when he wrote this article. He was just reading um, my book. So uh, I wrote, sent this article to them, uh, you know, and to see if they would publish it as a letter to the editor. And they said, no, nope, we're not publishing that. This is just the normal course of the business of science and have a nice day. And then I was like, okay, I'm guessing then I could be wrong. But, and they also said, and you didn't address any of Biko and Elio's core concerns. Now, it may be that they were simply asking me to address his core concerns in a reply article, um, or, but the, the impression I got, for better or for worse, is that if they're not considering any of this personal attacks when he's literally using my name in the article and using me as a case study of meditation gone horribly wrong, it's hard to imagine that that's friendly or neutral ground. Does that make sense? Because they're willing to blatantly violate their own editorial guideline policy, which specifically says no personal attacks, uh, to publish this article. And then I thought, okay, probably publishing in mindfulness is not going to work out for me. Again, I, I, I didn't give them the courtesy of testing them, except with my ethical um, letter to the editor, which they were, um, what's uh, they didn't think my arguments held water. So. So that's sort of the background history to this conversation. And in parallel with this, right when this article came out, I, had, I was actually at Cambridge, invited there by someone in the Department of Psychiatry to spend the summer uh, helping to figure out how to put together teams and do research projects that would help um, bring some of the technology of the stages of insight and the highs and lows and strange experiences that people can go through on the path, not only of Buddhist meditation, but I would as a perennialist would say, lots of other traditions. So I, I see this pattern in many other styles of meditation and across many types of insight practice, and sometimes even in people who are not insight practitioners. Now, Bhikkhu Analio counters back, there's no way, it's impossible, you cannot have Theravadan insight stages and non-Theravadan insight 
practitioners, uh, by basically essentially by definition. And though he did say he did not want to stand in the way of any clinically meaningful, useful patterns that were good for healthcare. So his objection actually is, um, he says specifically to me um, uh, that uh, his objection is that I use insight stage terminology. And he says, if you stop using the language of insight stages, I have no objection, which is interesting. And then I was like, oh, okay. You know, if he said there's a clin clinical meaningful pattern there, he's just basically putting a, basically like a trademark, a religious proprietary trademark on certain language. And it would kind of be like if Christians had described the gallbladder somewhere in their writings, and then you couldn't use the word gallbladder or something because Christians had described it. You could call it something else, but you couldn't call it a gallbladder. It's not a real example, but it's, it's from my point of view, this stuff was all just sort of attentional developmental embryology or anatomy or physiology, um, being something of a universalist and clinician, I think, and I'm seeing what I think are these patterns again and again in multiple traditions. I very much looked at it like one would look at um, any other descriptive technology that just happened to be describing something very well. And what's interesting is I think the Buddhists did this the best of any tradition I see. It's not like lots of other maps can't contribute to this, but I don't see any that are as quite as technically precise or complete that have a language that is quite as clear in the fear stage. You might experience fear, for example. It's very straightforward language. It's not flowery or metaphorical or something that doesn't translate to a secular clinical context. Most of it does because it doesn't have a lot of ontological assumptions. It's just very phenomenological. And so one of the weird things is that Biko and Alio and I look at the same bit of tech, the same bit of descriptive technology, and come to radically different conclusions. Whereas I think it is literally one of the coolest things that Buddhism ever did in terms of uh, helpful impact for helping people through this territory. And he sees it as proprietary language that literally applies to nothing else and has no universal application and we should be expressly forbidden from using any of that language in clinical practice and are forced essentially to come up with our own language. Now, it may be that the medical profession would want that anyway. So, uh, for example, you might have physicians of another faith who would not want Buddhistic language, however descriptive, dry, or phenomenological, to be incorporated into their clinical practice. But we all we do this all the time with other words. So for example, a lot of terms come from Arabics because in the Middle Ages, the the in the Arab world, they were doing great anatomy and physi you know, physiology to the degree that they understood physiology back then without biochemistry, et cetera. And we still use tons of those words. Or the Greeks, for example, who worshiped gods and goddesses and you know, nymphs and things. We still use a lot of their words in medicine. Medicine is mostly Greek, and actually, in, in its origins, um, with some Arab words thrown in. And so, uh, it, so it's a curious set of objections. And now, at least, I understand him better. But with that background of total anti-pernialism, total, you know, ununiversalism, and the sense of proprietary branding and his strictness about that, that you cannot basically use Theravada and Buddhist words to describe anything other than Theravada Buddhism, even if they seem to apply, uh, then we can go into this with that background and sort of start to take on the article and its ethical and scientific implications. The other implication of this that was troubling is that since he wanted to totally discredit me as a person, as being, you know, basically having mental illness, and having no value to the world, that 
was hitting at an interesting time when I had just dedicated my retired life, which I could be sitting on a beach in Tahiti, or well, maybe not with an American passport these days, or I could be helping to bring a clinical awareness of these kinds of meditative patterns and patterns of symptomatology and dysfunction and increased function to the world of clinical medicine and trying to raise money for that. Uh, it could not have hit at a worse time because we have a team we've collectively gathered together about 50 people who think these the patterns that the ancient Buddhist texts point out actually have some clinical relevance because they've seen it for themselves in their own lives, in their own practices, plenty of which were not necessarily Theravadan Buddhist. But they said, wow, that pattern just really fits. We should bring something of that spirit of diagnostic and phenomenological capability forward to clinical medicine, such that when clinicians and scientists study this stuff, they have some appreciation of the developmental attentional anatomy that the Buddhists just happened to describe, but doesn't seem to be explicitly Buddhist, as far as we can tell, it just seems to be human. And so it couldn't, couldn't have hit at a worse time in terms of sort of public relations or what I was trying to do or trying to help fundraise and organize this uh, group of people and bring awareness of these things. So uh, it's, it's so, but it definitely makes for an interesting conversation and a platform to discuss a whole lot of issues that I think really should be discussed. So that's kind of my long background of history to this thing. And then hopefully we can get into the article on a little bit firmer understanding of where everybody's coming from. Maybe you could say a couple of words about who Bhikkhu Analio is, hmm. uh, his scholarship and mm -hmm. so on. So he's ordained, I think currently in a Sri Lankan order, though I think previously for a while he was ordained in a Burmese order. And he's a, uh, a very talented scholar with, um, uh, his linguistic abilities are truly impressive, right? And he, he writes articles where his rhetorical force is also impressive. He doesn't, he doesn't hold back at all. And he's a true fan, a devotee of the tradition of early Buddhism. And early, so Buddhism, even the Theravada, which is usually considered one of the oldest schools of Buddhism, developed over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So for example, you have early suttas who are being written a few hundred years, uh, you know, BCE. And then you've got later stuff like the Visuddhimagga, which is quoted in this article, which is written somewhere in the fifth century AD, I believe, and texts all the way. So that's, you know, an 800 year period, which spans to then if, if the Buddha was somewhere around 500 and something BCE, then uh, you're talking about an over thousand year period of conceptual and uh, ling linguistic and textual development. And he has a particular love, which I can appreciate of the really early stuff. It does have a different flavor and feel. I think it is true that linguistically and conceptually, you can tease out some of the stuff that was earlier versus later. Uh, like the Dhammapada has a very different feel from the Abhidhamma texts. Like they almost seem different traditions in some ways. And, and I get the, the tension. And he's not the first to have to have appreciated an early Buddhist perspective, but he's, let's just say, a zealous advocate for, uh, um, its primacy is a sort of a funny word, but you can feel the deep love of it and saying, this is really sort of the pure stuff. To him, in some ways, it feels like the true stuff. And he does this funny thing where it's, I don't, 
I don't know if he would say that exactly. And he uses later Buddhist texts all the way up to the Vasudhimaga, which is one of the big things we're going to talk about, which is this you know, fifth century text written by Buddhaghosa, which is controversial and clearly non-canonical because it's a, you know hundreds of years later. But based on the Buddhist text is sort of a summary that became an extremely important meditation manual. I can um, show you my copy here. So here's my very beaten up, well-worn copy of this thing that I bought actually at Dylan's in London um, sometime in the mid nineties uh, that he thinks I have not ever read and I have, uh, am starting to literally wear out. So, um, cause I've been through it so many times. And it's interesting, he will quote the Vasudhi Maga as it helps him, which is a very late Buddhist text as these things go. And then he will quote early Buddhist texts sort of asserting their supremacy or priority or something um, when it suits him. And he switches back and forth between these two points of view very fluidly basic and hyper-selectively to support his arguments, which as a rhetorician, I can appreciate because most people reading mindfulness are not gonna know the ins and outs of exactly when and what and who and all the controversies, right? They're not gonna be Buddhist textual scholars. Um, and he makes full use of some of the naivete of his audience, I think. Um, uh, although he, you know, the quotes he uses are good. And the fact that he can do Chinese and Sanskrit is impressive, right? So there are these Sanskrit versions of some of these texts as well. And then Chinese translations of those that he can go back to and sort of cross correlate, was that true? And then he can seem super impressive linguistically, which he is, when he quotes it sort of the same passage in the Pali, in the Chinese, and in the Sanskrit with his having been the translator. So cool for his linguistic capabilities, cool for his rhetorical uh, capabilities, but um, he he definitely is not always dealing entirely fairly with his texts. And he also does the same thing with my book. So he basically, um, in my book, he has this tendency to, to pick out the most inflammatory, sort of harsh, obvious, uh, quotes that are critical of me, selectively sort of take those out of context, which I specifically ask people not to do in the foreword of my book, say, you can quote me, just don't do it out of context, which he does a lot, actually. And then he sort of weaponizes all of my uh, attempts at normalization, at vulnerability, at showing humanity and flaws into a pretty stinging attack on me. Okay. Um, and, and so just recognize that while he is a, a very, very competent scholar, he's also very, very, uh, he has no problems uh, weaponizing is the wrong word, but, but using texts and quotes to his full selective advantage, which is, you know, in a, in a war of words and ideas and a fight for a cause, the cause of early Buddhism and the cause for its um, sort of, uh, rejuvenation or purification or clean, cleaning of it and, and stripping out the pure essence of the Buddha Dharma. I can see why he does that, but uh, I also don't think it's entirely fair. So, um, but he's, he's a very nice person to talk to. Uh, we had about two, about 45 minute conversations in person. He's very interesting. He'll be, he'll, he'll say things like, I have, I have no, you know, hard feelings for you. I have no hatred for you. I have no irritation by you. Um, but we're going to make sure that nobody, you know, ever believes you again, and you know, nobody takes you seriously, you know, and uh, meta to you, 
you know, so it's very, it's got this, it's got this weird sort of like super nicey nicey, but what he's saying is really biting and attacky. So maybe I'm taking this too personally, but the, the discordancy of his tone when I speak with him was, um, it was surreal. I'm not used to that actually. Usually people are doing something like that. They have a, um, anyway, so interesting to talk to. And I do appreciate his willingness to engage. I appreciate the fact that he took a bunch of time to talk back and forth with an email with me and clarify things. Uh, but obviously I, I would find it hard to appreciate his article that is trying to do this to me intentionally. Um, I'm sure you'll, as we go through the article, uh, substantiate uh, several of those points. Listeners and readers will no doubt be aware that there are many Buddhisms. Uh, Buddhism, of course, tradition that's uh, spanned well, thousands of years in uh, many countries. And of course, a great activity of textual scholars is, is to establish from fragments that remain of original scriptures what was in them. It's, it's rare that we really uh, know from antiquity uh, what a document contained without some sometimes quite serious ambiguities, whether it's due to copying errors in the uh, uh, copying of the texts or just revisions in different versions and so on. And so as you point out, there is an ambiguity as to what the text actually said, uh, never mind what they actually meant. <laughs> what they right. actually, to interpret, of course, is another matter, but to, to substantiate what's in them is another matter again. And um, Biko Analio, to be fair, um, has done a lot of important work in that regard. So I'll give him his yes. due there, right? He, he is one of the world's leading experts on this. He has his clear bias towards early Buddhism, but his, his linguistic and abilities and scholarship are formidable. And he's been extremely diligent in that regard with his um, campaign, both to clarify a lot of those kind of controversial points you raise, and also to bring forward what he feels is very pure dharma. And I can truly appreciate the interest in that sense of purity, that sense of cleanliness, that sense of originality, that sense of authenticity, that basically the closer to the Buddha, the better from a Buddhist point of view. There's a logic to it that is straightforward. And, and I get that. And Bhikkhu Analio is a zealous and diligent and talented advocate for those sorts of points of views and beautiful aesthetics, which I, I fully appreciate in that sort of form. Yeah. And you take issue with some of his conclusions, of course, uh, but it, yeah, right. it is fair to, to say that <clears throat> I think he, he does acknowledge, acknowledge that the ambiguity when we're dealing with, with old texts and also the historical context as ideas change over time. In fact, that's part of his initial criticism of you is a historical critique of the meditation method uh, that you have uh, followed. Let me read the abstract then to give people a sense of, uh, and that's publicly available, to give people a sense where we're coming from the article and then perhaps we can uh, get into the specifics. So the abstract is a case study of the descriptions of the progress of Buddhist insight meditation provided by Daniel Ingram shows how a forceful form of mindfulness combined with high-speed mental noting can result in the construction of meditative experiences to accord with expectations created by maps of the progress of insight, culminating in claims to having reached levels of awakening. The potential impact of personal bias evident in this way reveals challenges faced by those researching meditative practices and cautions 
against overvaluing subjective reports by yogis. In particular, potentially adverse effects of mindfulness practices in the healthcare setting need to be placed into proper perspective as the contention that even those who do not engage in deep and intensive insight meditation can suffer from repercussions potentially resulting from undergoing the insight knowledges is not accurate. Progress in research on mindfulness requires the sobriety of evaluating meditative experiences within their context, be it psychological, doctrinal, cultural, or social, in order to arrive at balanced assessments that avoid the two extremes of uncritical enthusiasm and exaggerated apprehensions. Yeah, so there's a tremendous amount in even the abstract, right? Um, it seems the article is, is uh, that you've, you've essentially trained your brain to construct meditation experiences because of the particular style of fast noting. In his initial critique, the initial sections, he lays out a view of the historical context of that fast style coming from Mahasi Sayadaw and a number of other developments that are feeding in to what he's uh, claiming is happening to you. So you've trained your brain to construct meditation experiences because of the style you're using. Also, the maps themselves are placed in some degree of a historical context and in other articles also are shown to uh, perhaps not accord with early Buddhism or to be an evolution and not something that's universal. And certain elements such as the stage of fear are not found in his view in the early Buddhist literature. And that becomes important when we're evaluating the possible negative connotations of meditation or the negative impacts of meditation in, in say, a healthcare setting, which is his justification for writing this article. But there's also a sense in which not only are the maps not universally accepted within the early Buddhist tradition in the form that you use them, you're also misinterpreting them even in their late form stage to the extent where you're getting sometimes the complete opposite of what he uh, reads the maps as saying. A certain stage will give this outcome and actually you're advocating that the stage gives a totally different outcome. This is part of a theme, I think, where it's alleged that you're biasing your own subjective experience over the texts. And where your experience differs from the texts, you claim the texts are wrong or mythologized or overdone. This is, I think, a, a crucial part of his attack on you. And he, he also lists situations like your own teachers considering you to be delusional and you rejecting their assessments or advice in your own quest for the maps and your own confidence in your subjective experience. You are, in your view, a real arhat, the text descriptions of our hatship are not only incorrect, but impossible because they don't accord with your own experience. Your book is titled Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha. You claim that traditional or essential view, as your book title states, but where your experience disagrees with the canonical texts, such as they even agree with themselves, you're in fact right and they're wrong. <laughs> uh, like a blind man who denies the existence of color because he himself has never seen it. You're not enlightened, actually, and you deny the possibility of classical enlightenment because you've not experienced it. So definitely many of his arguments, each of those um, are interesting points to address. Uh, yeah. So yeah, keep going, yeah. go ahead. If it was just to remain the private delusions of a, a failed meditator, these fantasies would not be harmful beyond anyone than yourself. But because you and your ideas have in recent time been cited in serious academic work in the field of psychology and psychiatry, as, as you've mentioned, you're in fact even working at Cambridge on projects to do with that. The professionals in that field are not sufficiently trained in Buddhist doctrine to recognize your error. 
And so by uh, being informed by you, there's a danger of you misleading them quite, quite seriously, particularly in the area of negative meditation experiences being an inevitable consequence, or at least a probable consequence uh, of any kind of contemplative practice. Here we come back to this idea of perennialism. You may over, over egg the possibility of negative experiences, which you colloquially call the dark night of the soul. Misappropriating in an, an Alayo's view, the term commonly associated with, but never actually used by, the 16th century Christian Carmelite Saint John of the Cross. So each of those are points worth addressing, and uh, maybe we take them sort of one at a time at some point. So should we start off with the historical section of the article? Sure. Perhaps you can summarize his argument here and why it's relevant. Yeah. So to try to be fair to Bhikkhu Analyo, he's not the first person to have criticized the entire Mahasi Sadao tradition, right? So this is this is a um, something of a. a favorite sport of plenty of meditators uh, ever since Mahasi and drawing on the work of Lady Saido and other people in that lineage came on the scene. And um, they basically say that noting is a newly created technique that people weren't doing before that, although you can find it basically straightforwardly in um, one by one as they occurred, one of the suttas in the Majimini Kaya, you know, where Sariputta notices each of these qualities arising and vanishing in jhana one by one as they occurred. And so you can find this in texts which he would say are not super early, they're canonical, but he wouldn't say they're true early Buddhism. And so he would dismiss texts like that as not being the real thing. Uh, and then we get into a problem I should mention from the get-go with the whole historical argument related to insight maps, that there's this conflict intrinsically between the world of clinical science and the world of orthodoxy, right? Whereas orthodoxy and basically always says earlier and closer to the historical source is better, right? So the oldest, the older the text, the closer to the Buddha, the better the text, basically. There are rare exceptions if they're super weird or seem to contain other elements from other historical documents or don't you know, there's other ways you can tell maybe a text may not be as authentic from an early Buddhist point of view. And then clinical practice generally says most recent developments better, right? So we don't use much of 18th century or 17th century medicine except the anatomy, the anatomy, because the anatomy, they got a lot of it right, though they didn't know things like capillaries and they didn't know things like little nerves and they didn't, they, you know, they didn't understand what the brain did because it was just this gray thing um, that smelled funny and and but they didn't really understand what it was and so um, we luckily now have biochemistry and genetics and all kinds of cool things that allow us an upgraded understanding and so there's this intrinsic tension between old is best and new that works is best and the the thing that really annoys a lot of the early Buddhism is better Mahasi Saidao is wrong people is that it is extremely effective. So for example, uh, like at IMS, they they tried a whole bunch of techniques. They were in, influenced by Thai forest tradition and Achan Cha and Goenka and a bunch of people for their three-month retreat. And then Mahasi Saidao came somewhere around 1980 or so and led a retreat there. And they got 10% stream enters by their count, which was levels of insight and depths of meditation they had never gotten before. And they never looked back. And this is sort of an uncomfortable fact for a lot of people um, who would be 
trying to take down Mahasi because actually Mahasi was very influential at IMS. And so you get these weird alliances of sort of like IMS, where Joseph Goldstein is, who wrote the book Mindfulness and is a big advocate for mindfulness because mindfulness, cool, right? Paying attention, great. And so, but they're perennialists. So like, my, you know, I have quotes I could show you from Joseph Goldstein, where he uses terms like dark night of the soul in some of his books to describe insight meditation territory, as does Jack Kornfield, who's also from IMS, who even titles the section on the stages of insight in his book, The Dark Night of the Soul. And so, and I was influenced by these teachers. So it's not weird when I came up reading books like The Dark Night of the Soul and having, you know, prominent insight teachers who founded the, the center I did my first retreat in and a second retreat and found teachers in and was very appreciative of, we're using terms like Dark Night of the Soul. So anyway, so, but that's obviously sort of new and perennialist and the sort of fusion sense that we can put things together that are really describing the same territory. And you that runs starkly up against the sense of ancient orthodoxy. And then you've got, so it, so the alliance between, between bhikkhu and alio and mindfulness is a very tense one. And then you have the problem of um, uh, the, uh, the fact that in a clinical context, we want what works. We're, we're not interested in, is it the closest, you know, description to the Buddha from a clinical point of view, um, unless someone could demonstrate in a study that, for example, early Buddhist texts and the older they are, the more cl clinically efficacious they are. So we would need evidence in some sort of trial that would say, okay, the oldest texts lead to the best you know, outcome results from a clinical outcome point of view, but we don't have any science like that. And so what we're left with is the, the, the Buddhists who are criticizing um, Mahasi, which he would say came from uh, a reaction to colonialism. So there are a lot of people who say Mahasi was this reaction to colonialism and the colonialists, when they came into Burma, um, they they didn't like Buddhism and Buddhism had to then re-justify itself and its efficacy and almost its scientificness and almost a secular quality to it and its validity in the face of British and uh, colonial and Christian uh, uh, attacks that were direct on it and the sense of a, a threat to their importance to society. So a lot of people will say, well, these tech, you know, techniques developed as a, you know, a polemic uh, is what he, the term he labels all this, but basically responding to political pressure and he dismisses entirely that they might've actually had meditative efficacy. And there were a number of other things that came out of the Mahasi tradition um, through Upandita. We get something called the Vipassana Jhanas, which is basically what they thought of as solving an original problem you find in the text where the stages of insight are not mentioned in the classical, you know, canon literature, sort of. They kind of are, actually. We'll get to that. But um, but then in there, you talk about a jhanic progression, and they um, believe that the progression of the jhanas and the progression of the insight stages have some sort of relationship to each other, that it's they're not totally orthogonal um, dimensions of investigation that have they're totally unrelated, but you can sort of uh, see that there is some connection. And texts like, again, which Biko Analia would say is later than he really prefers, like one by one as they occurred in the Majimini Kaya, uh, you know, sort of seem to make that bridge even back then in the canon. Um, Biko Analia would say, well, that's not early enough. But I would then respond and say, well, actually, you're se selectively ignoring evidence. And I would say that early Buddhism, I think, clearly includes the story of the Buddha's awakening, where he's tempted by Mara. 
And what's interesting is if you look at the sequence of the temptations by Mara, of the Buddha himself, he, you know, there was terrifying things. There was an, a giant, he was, you know, assaulted by an elephant and a hail of like mud and rocks or something and, and a storm. And then also at one point tempted by Mara's daughters and all, all this stuff that were, you know, there were all these challenges. And if you actually look at the sequence of it, it seems to relate to the insight stages. And you go, okay, wait a second. E even the original story of the Buddha in the old text, this stuff seems to be there. And by by the time you get to um, canonical sources like the Pati Sambhidamaga, which clearly is late as canonical sources go, but you find the insight stages in there in prototypical form. And then the Abhidhamma, which is not early, that's for certain, but it is canonical, well within the Pali Canon, not even commentarial. Um, the Abhidhamma, you know, as you can find in books like a comprehensive manual of Abhidhamma by Bhikkhu Bodhi, and you will find the insight stages in there also. And then, so, uh, so that, you know, and, but this discussion between those who say, oh no, the insight stages are not canonical, they're not original, they're not old. Um, well, they, actually they are, at least in their prototypical forms, they are canonical. And then the, the questions of, do they relate to genres does seem to be canonical if you're really, you know, if you're willing to accept certain canonical texts as having some validity. And so this, but this is a tension that's been going on for you know almost a hundred years now, and is not a new thing within Buddhism. Whereas I think most people reading this would not have a sense that this is two very different interpretive traditions and practice traditions battling it out. And this just happens to be another front on which that skirmish is occurring that I happen to be caught up in because I happen to be a Mahasi Saidao Insight Map fan, as well as a Vipassajana terminology fan. Isn't part of the problem here that in calling yourself an Arahant, claiming that traditional title, and in titling your book, Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, that you're claiming the traditional titles and drawing in a certain sense from the traditional uh, reservoir, whilst at the same time taking this clinical approach of, well, what works, this pragmatic approach, as you call it. And it seems you're quite willing to question the traditional orthodox sources, such as the orthodox sources agree even among themselves, which is as you pointed out, they're a great area of debate. You seem quite happy to draw on the traditional terms, including traditional titles and claims of attainment on the one hand, yet redefine them or criticize them on the other. Are you playing both sides of the traditional game and the clinical game? Are you playing both sides of this sort of, as you just put it, the orthodox and, and the clinical? Is, hmm. is that one of the points of conflict where perhaps Analio has a point? Uh, Yes and no. So from a traditional orthodox point of view, he definitely has a point. There's no question that my definitions of our hotship do not meet all of the criteria in the traditional texts. Totally true. This was obvious, and I even point this out in my book. So in case anybody was thinking I was trying to get away with this, I mentioned the conflict directly in chapter 37 and go into detail about and my own practice history about the tension between the maps and reality and practice and history and theory and all that. And, and I mentioned the traditional criteria explicitly. So it's not like he's, oh, Daniel's caught red-handed, you know, doing this thing. Um, no, I, I said, here, here are the problems. And the, then um, also, it, it was, I kind of, it was fun to actually go back to some of my shelves and find where the Tibetan tradition loves to redefine our hotship. And I don't know if you would like some of these, me to go through some of these quotes. Here's actually one by H.H. H., the Dalai Lama. 
you know, um, you know, and they redefine, and here's another one by Pabunka Rinpoche, big books, um, where they redefine our hot ship in ways that are, let's just say Biku and Nalia would probably not appreciate, right? Because that's something of a, of a, um, they, in this case, are using it to say the Bodhisattva is better, the Arhats, they all get scared, they all die when you tell them truths about emptiness. They, you know, they're limited, selfish people who only save themselves and then get stuck and not caring for anyone else because they're so blissed out and stuff. I could read you the quotes. If you want them or not, you can look them up in these books. They're there. Just look for Arhat in the index of any of these. You'll see what I'm talking about. And so even the Tibetans who say, no, we are the truest, best, most advanced, but most authentic Buddhism that really is the spirit of you know saving everyone that the buddha mentioned rather than the theravada so redefining our hotship in various ways is actually as old as the tradition itself maybe as far as i can tell and debates about what our hotship was and what it actually led to and even which of the texts in the in the original canon whose criteria and when i asked biko nalio about this he said no 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 i don't believe all the criteria some of them are too late they're not true so like you know the thing about you you must ordain within however many days or or die that you find in the questions of King Melinda, um, which is very late Buddhist stuff, right? Because King Melinda was a Greek king, so it's, it's later Buddhism. Um, and uh, you know, he says, no, 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 no. I don't believe all that stuff either. I have my criteria that are the ones in the texts I believe because they're old, and these are the ones I like. And so, redefining our hotship for, for those not familiar with this game is a chronic sport in Buddhism, and basically all the traditions do it and use it for their own ends. So I'm not. I'm not a, an outlier on this. And in fact, you know, I'm I'm in there with, you know, I don't say I'm anything like his holiness, the Dalai Lama, you know, but this is considered normal behavior to some degree, or at least it's certainly common and chronic, to be fair. Um, and I point out exactly the problems with my definitions and the, the tensions with the old texts explicitly. You can find those in chapter 37 of my book. Um, and I'm not trying to hide any of this. And, and I go way out of my way to explain when I'm using the term exactly what I mean by it. I have a high degree of definitional precision. And, and he says, well, this is not what you find in early Buddhism. Even though I state explicitly in the foreword of my book, you know, this is a, a mix of all kinds of traditions. I'm influenced by Buddhist traditions. I'm influenced by non-Buddhist traditions. I'm, I'm drawing a lot into this. And I'm also something of a perennialist and definitely one who in the spirit of people like um, Jack Cornfield, where is his book, A Path of Heart? Um, here we go. So in the spirit of like Jack Cornfield, who I don't want to, I've got to bring into this carefully because he actually solves the problem by bringing in realms and chakras. So, so for example, Jack Cornfield, you know, says that he, he's more of a traditionalist when it comes to insight state of sort of, but then he uses the dark night of the soul terminology to talk about the, you know, the Duke and Yana's, and then he brings in chakras and realms. Realms are canonical, sort of, but his own descriptions of them wouldn't exactly meet all canonical definitions. And then he brings in chakras, which are totally non-Buddhist, to attempt to sort of fill out the map and describe the wide range of territory. Because you're, you're left essentially either concluding that the, the Theravadan insight maps are totally proprietary to Theravada and have nothing to do with the rest of the world. And they're not, Buddhism is not universalist. Buddhism is not applicable to anyone except Theravadan insight practitioners. Or you're left going, wait a second, the maps don't describe anything. Even as you find them in what he considers their final developed form in the Visuddhimagga, they don't describe all the wild territory you see these days. I mean, if you, you pick up a book like, you know, The Stormy Search for the Self, or spiritual emergency, you know, those are interesting books. Or 
say, breaking open, you're going to find the descriptions of territory that are not at all in the Visuddhimagga. And so at the very least, we have ample evidence today clinically that those maps are incomplete. I would say those maps are an interesting framework that you can then upgrade and expand on. People like Jack Kornfield would say, let's keep the maps sort of semi-intact, although use St. John of the Cross's language on top of them, but then add chakras and other stuff to, to fill it in. But we're all dealing with the fact that they're inadequate. And so I, as plenty of people who taught me and I've been influenced by and Mahasi Saidao did, added their own phenomenological descriptions to try to improve them and make them more complete as we saw best. And that's an old game in this business. And, and even the tradition, you know, develops. So if you go from like, you know, the Vimudi Maga, you know, to the Vasudhi Maga, you find more description comes in a few hundred years later. This is somewhere uh, first century BCE. This is fifth century BC. So somewhere around maybe 500 or something years later, you find more tech coming in and more comprehensiveness. Although I actually like the Vimudi Maga a lot. Um, we'll get to that one. But so... So yeah, it's complicated and redefining our hot ship. Again, at least I'm very explicit in what I mean by the term. Um, but you know, I am not an early Buddhist. You know, so for example, you can tell the early Buddhists from their orange robes. You know, mine is black and purple, and uh, so you can tell in an instant if, the, if this was hard for Bhikkhu and Alio, this is the wrong color robe, right? It, not early Buddhist. Mm -hmm. Well, let, Just let in me case ask, this is unclear. Yeah, I'll quote now from your book, and it's a quote that Bhikkhu Analio uses. He quotes you as saying, the traditional Theravada models contain numerous statements that are simply wrong about what an awakened being cannot do or will do. Mm -hmm. My favorite examples of this include statements that our hats cannot break the precepts, uh, you list then several precepts, cannot become sexually aroused, and so on. Uh, needless to say, all are simply absurd lies. <laughs> uh, end quote. Now, of course, I've, I've taken that really rather out of context, but the point is you bring up this tension between the clinical, uh, more scientific idea that we might progress on knowledge and that, in fact, what we believe now, if we can prove some of it's wrong or improve upon it, that's actually sort of success in terms of science, uh, culture, if you want, in it, at its best. Uh, but that orthodox textual scholar is attempting to say, well, what's the oldest, what, what's closest to the original source, etc. And of course, they're engaged in two different enterprises also. Yes. The textual scholar is not really concerned with the efficacy of the knowledge, merely how accurately can we represent the view that was expressed at that point in that text and so on. Whereas the scientist is looking, presumably, for the accuracy of the knowledge, as it can be proved in the scientific method, they're, they're pulling in different directions. But are you saying that you know what a real arhat was <laughs> you're playing both games it's fine to say well look some of that stuff may be mythologized or inaccurate and and so we need to really think well what what uh does awakening really look like in a sort of pragmatic uh, you could almost say sort of scientific sense but at the same time it seems you might be saying that actually the arhatship that you have or that you're putting forth is actually what they had and the <laughs> okay. So you play. You could be accused, I think, of playing both games. Fair, and both of us are playing both games. I think sort of equally because Biko Analio, even though he says he doesn't have any clinical, he's merely concerned with textual scholarship. He then goes into the realm of, you know, real de declarations finally about the clinical implications of early Buddhist texts, 
And in the same way, you could accuse me of getting out of my lane and going back and saying, well, this is what they were actually experiencing 2,500 years ago when I don't actually know for certain, right? So, but what I can say is that um, the package models, so if you look at um, the package models, which say, if you got, say, what um, uh, Bahia of the bark cloth got, which suddenly all, you know, they're just in the seeing, just the seen, in the hearing, just the heard, in the thinking, just the thought, with no stable self found in it anywhere. Well, I managed to do that through meditative practices that were straightforwardly designed to illuminate a truth that is actually very straightforward, that there's just contact and contact, that there's just thought and thought. Well, that's just straightforwardly true. It's not a weird thing. But um, there is a, a way that that can become locked in as a perceptual baseline that then the text would say, some other text would say that then instantly at that point, you say couldn't engage in sexual activity or whatever. Um, uh, then it turns out you can do that kind of performance testing and find out that's not true. And so you have, okay, in the seeing, just the seen, in the hearing, just the heard can be done. You can lock that in as a perceptual baseline of a process of identification that stopped. Um, and then, so you actually um, suddenly with a grid and the, it's a four by four grid of people who have done that and haven't done that and people who can have sex and who can't and, or whatever. And then you can, you can say, well, you should have all, all four cases of people who haven't done that can't have sex. People who have done that can have sex, you know, and you know, the other two. And so um, from my scientific point of view, what would be interesting then is, is to figure out if this is actually a sort of a, you know, a, a semantic question in that if you can't have sex, you're not an arhat, sort of a definitional question, or is it a functional question of can you realize what Bahia of the bark cloth realized and still have sex or not? So you may have two cases, right? So people who have understood in the seeing, just the seen and the hearing, just the heard, and really had that suddenly become just very straightforward as an experience as something that you know nothing changes because it's something that stopped, not something that's stable as an experience. Uh, then uh, and, you know, which ha basically how, how do you do the clinical science to show if, if there are those four quadrants? And because the Buddhist text would say the instant you understand the true nature of sensations, that they're ungraspable, they're, they're totally transient, that they're just happening now, that there is no self in them as a stable entity, that you should have these other effects occur. And it seems in experience, you can actually have multiple cases um, and so these are the kinds of things that should actually be amenable as a better level of ev evidence quality than his expert opinion with textual backing or my expert opinion with textual backing. Let's do the science. Let's, let's say if he's got people he thinks are our hots, well, let's test them out and see what happens with them. And then we should also take people who seem to have locked in a perceptual mode that would in other ways align with the description of our hotship but yet they can still have sex. And so this is something that actually modern scientific methods could, could be better than expert opinion or just textual scholars arguing with each other or whatever. And this should have clinical implications, right? Because one of the things he gets into in his article is explicitly that if you perceive things to arising and passing away, this will eradicate lust, right? It's one of the things he claims in his article, which I say in the stage of the arising and passing away that people can get pretty sexually you know, libidinously amplified sometimes. 
um, uh, with the rapture can cause very sexual dreams, complicated sexual identity effects and all kinds of stuff. And he just says, oh no, that cannot possibly be true. Except if you get to talk to you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people over years who have gone on insight retreats, specifically doing insight techniques with insight teachers, right? In the Theravada tradition, in traditional Theravada monasteries, Hundreds of them, you know, describe these effects, and I ran into these effects, and lots of my co-meditators ran into these effects that don't quite fit with the text. And then you go, well, wait a second, we, we were in traditional Theravadan insight context. We were examining the three characteristics of our six sensors. We were practicing mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of walking, mindfulness of, you know, our experience. And, and I did three insight meditation retreats before I ever was even had even heard of noting or introduced to noting, and I still got the same effects. So his argument that I was descripting these effects misses the six times or so I went through these cycles in daily life before I had ever even learned to meditate in any context. I wouldn't didn't even know what the word Theravada was, right? And he, he fixates on the one that happened in a dream and said, oh, it's just a childhood dream. And then he ignores the other, you know, the other ones I describe were some very, very powerful effects happened that actually, uh, you know, when I've discussed these with insight teachers who had been monks and stuff, they say, oh yeah, that's insight stages, right? And, but they happen outside of Theravada context. And so there's clearly a disagreement on the universality of the insight stages and whether or not they can apply off retreat. But there's also an incompleteness of the maps because if you get to talk to literally hundreds of people about the progress of what happens, even in strict Theravada insight context, some, some people at very specific stage of the arising and passing away get powerful sexual effects. But it's more important than that to get this right from a scientific point of view, because he says, if you're being mindful of things coming and going, this will eliminate lust. And he, he gives a quote that says that. Um, and okay, interesting. Well, then people who are being taught mindfulness, right? So mindfulness is taught by people like John Kabat-Zinn. You're literally being trained to be mindful and see things come and go and you know, thoughts arise and vanish and, and feelings arise and vanish. That's what this is, you know? And, and uh, Joseph Goldstein as well, is that going to eliminate everybody's lust? And then if you have this conversation with them, hey, if you do this technique and notice things come and go, you know, from a Buddhist textual point of view, it's going to eliminate all lust, and then you'll be have no lust. And then how's that going to go for your marriage, for your relationships, for your partner? Are they going to be okay with this? Like, if Biko Analio is true, should we be counseling people on this? And from an ethical point of view, saying, hey, risk benefits and alternatives, are, are you comfortable doing a technique that might totally eliminate your libido and your capacity to have sex and make you a libidinous and impotent? Like, is that is that the conversation we're having? And is that really what he's arguing for in a clinical context? And then if he's right, should ethically this be like on the warning label of mindfulness, that if you're mindful of things coming and going, you know, then maybe your lust will disappear because he says very clearly the Buddha said, if you perceive things come and go, you know, then lust will be eliminated. And you can actually find that in the in the Visuddhimagga, which is again, a text and quotes I'm very aware of. So he thinks he's introducing new material to me, but not. So anyway, that's my long discussion of that. You're pointing out there some of the background conflicts of view that are informing yeah. this article. Uh, you're talking about this, uh, the conflict between the scientific and the textual scholarship, ways of valuing truth claims, essentially, and way, right. ways of evaluating evidence. And of course, what's at stake here? Rather than the integrity of the tradition, which is something that could be argued to be at stake, although Buddhism has had lots of debates about that, uh, it's also... Uh, what about going forward in a clinical setting? Are we in danger of taking a late stage Burmese anti-colonial meditation uh, development as representative of 
early Buddhist mindfulness tradition or, or Buddhist mindfulness tradition in general, and maybe uh, going too far with that. So let, let me, let's talk about some specifics. What is it about the fast noting style of Mahasi Sayadaw that Analio claims uh, leaves it vulnerable to constructing meditation experience? Well, it's interesting because it's explicitly a very sort of deconstructionist technique. And if you go on these retreats, they actually don't tell you the maps straight away. They, they only generally reveal them when people are starting to get into out, you know, way out into the deep end of the dark night as happened to me. So in my own experience, I had no understanding of the maps. I couldn't be constructing experiences I had literally never heard of unless you suddenly want to get magical and say, my future self knew about them and somehow I was connecting with my future brain because I had literally never heard of the maps or insight stages, never heard them described, never read the text at that point that described them. Um, you know, I, I, I'd never read any of these books. Um, and I'm on a Mahasi Saida retreat and I'm having all kinds of wild and powerful experiences where my, you know, all this strange stuff is happening, weird mood highs, weird mood lows, terror and restlessness and, and my reality is starting to disintegrate into, into things. And they actually didn't tell me to note fast. Um, it just, uh, they told me to notice what was going on. And as I noted slowly, I was like rising, move, lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving, placing. My mind began to notice that things were going fast. And it's interesting, that's described in the old book. So, you know, if you look in, in you know, a comprehensive manual of Abhidhamma, you will find these elaborate, which is, you know, not certainly not early Buddhism, but definitely canonical, uh, the text that that is based on, you find these elaborate descriptions of moments of mind. And it is true that that was a development in terms of the momentariness theory, but this is not some new thing with Mahasi Saidao that fast or momentary, fast and momentary is stuff you find way back. And this is describing texts that are over 2000 years old at this point. And so the, the momentariness that I began to notice without prompting, they weren't telling me go super fast. I wasn't doing fast noting, but that was actually just what began to show up. As I said, rising, falling, lifting, moving, placing, wandering, you know, uh, moving my feet, watching my breath, noticing sensations, pain, just noticing. And I was noticing slowly at about maybe once per second or something. And then my mind was able to perceive things going incredibly rapidly. And so to keep up with what was going on, I, I had to figure out how to to get my mind faster because I was I was getting this increased re level of resolution, but I couldn't have been scripting that because I wasn't being told about that and I had no maps. And finally, after I'd gone through this high of I could sit for four hours and I could dissect reality into these little micro particles of vibrations and I was shaking and sniffing and all this wild stuff. And then I crashed and got into fear and terror and I couldn't, you know, a few days later, I couldn't sit for five minutes and the restlessness and the agitation, the irritation that, you know, described in reobservation, like a dart, a boil, a canker, a plague, all these, it's like, oh, it's a very challenging stage of irritation. And then was when they played me the maps and what they played me was the stage of equanimity. And, um, you know, they described everything I had gone through. So they described everything on this tape I had gone through over the previous 10 days or so in order. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And you can't accuse me of scripting if I had never heard of those things. I, I was, my mind was blown. I was like, how did they know I would go through these things? It, and it was this old scratchy tape that you could tell they had played hundreds of times and hundreds of retreats. And uh, this old Burmese uh, monk. Um, and I was like, oh my God, they knew. And I was convinced from that point on, the Theravadan insight stages are real and, and they can't be scripted if you don't know them. 
And so his, 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 and he, if he read this in my book, he would know this. He knows this part of my story. And, and he, like, you, and then he came up with this thing, oh, he must have scripted it anyway, even though that's clearly not even what his story said. So that's disingenuous, right? That's taking things out of their, their context. And it, it's drawing conclusions that how, how can you draw that conclusion from the text he read? It's, it's just blatantly not fair. And so that's the kind of double dealing he does um, uh, in his critique. And he does a lot of that. And it's it's like, come on, man. No, you know that's not accurate because you read the book. Like, there's no way that's possible. Well, yes. I mean, there's a couple of points there. Perhaps you correct me if, if I'm wrong here. But it seems that Analio is, is saying that because of the faster thrusting into style. And admittedly, this penetrative style versus the receptive style, it is a, a wider clash than just the conversation between the two of you. That's, uh, sure. that's, I think that's fair to say. Right, oh, definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that, especially at a speed, initially, perhaps one is thrusting the attention and noting uh, the sensations that one could detect. Then it's possible with that technique to anticipate what might be coming and to start to note in an anticipatory way. And then from there, it's a short slide to essentially constructing the entire thing where one is generating and noting sensations, fabricating essentially, anticipating and then creating the sensation to note. And because it's so fast, one doesn't notice that one is generating the things to note. That's part of where it goes off the rails and that's part of it with that technique. And that's part of why he's suggesting that you've trained your brain to actually construct meditation experiences. So then when later on, he gives the example of, as you call slam shifting the janas and nanas, in other words, being able to move with intention relatively fluently through different states of absorption or through different parts of the, of the progress of insight. What that's demonstrating is not a facility with the jhanas or the nanas. It's demonstrating a facility to construct an experience of the jhanas and the nanas. Yeah, so the point about, so I actually explicitly state in my book, when you're slam shifting jhanas and jhanas, those are, that's basically a shamatha practice, which means an, a, a practice in which you're constructing experience. And the degree to which you can construct or guide experience is the question, is that a bug or a feature? And so, uh, from a certain point of view, the genres are something you construct. You, you take reality with an ideal of what you want to get into. You cultivate the positive factors you're interested in, you're interested in. You exclude the hindrances that you're not interested in and use as a sort of a craftsperson, craft an experience for yourself uh, that is a known experience that people can get into. And this is also what people do with the powers as well. So you're specifically crafting an experience. And what's interesting, and what I like about Biko Analia, to be fair, is that he actually talks about powers and rebirth and stuff, like some of the old traditional stuff. He's kind of into that, which I think is kind of cool, actually. And so, like, and and he has this actually interesting uh, talk he does at Harvard, I think, uh, I think about two years ago, where he's talking about rebirth. And so, um, so he appreciates some of the strange stuff that can arise on the path from a sort of a Western secular point of view. And I think that's kind of cool because I think some of that needs to be incorporated into our understandings these days and at least see what science we can do on that and its clinical implications, if there are any. Um, but the, the, the fact is that a lot of the people who are not coming from an athletic sort of technical tradition like this, they look on that stuff and they just go, what are you doing? Whereas it turns out 
that one of the things you can learn to do as a skill, and I didn't make this stuff up, this is you know review practice and coming out of Upandita and Bill Hamilton and probably people before them, and clearly in the old text, right? So if, if you look at this, right, they, you know, if you pick up the path of freedom and you talk about the types of jhanic mastery, you know, you would attain the jhanas in order, out of order, with, with different objects, you know, with different casinas, you know, and, and that would be considered standard, you know, uh, what you would learn if you were really going to become athletic of the stuff on the path. And so what he considers just sort of abhorrent and, I don't know, heretical or all constructed or something, I consider just meditative competence. And that's the tradition I'm coming from considers that normal behavior and something you would just, of course, learn to do and that you could shift through the jnanas in order, out of order, it turns out is also something you can do. But that's a review practice and that's a specific practice that is that has other goals. It's actually not the kind of practice you would use explicitly necessarily to make insight progress. That's in a review phase of, of stages and jnanas you already have access to and can gain mastery of. So that's, um, and we differentiate these two things. When, when you would go on to do a progress phase, you would then put a, you know, where you're trying to go deeper into the stages of insight or deeper levels of awakening, then you would put aside that kind of practice and you would instead uh, engage with just moment to moment what is there, bare awareness. And it's also worth noting that I, in terms of noting and fast noting, I did a lot of noting early on but then I actually just went to direct noticing. So what a lot of people don't notice, and I think this is a linguistic thing that you would think if uh, Biko Analio might have noticed, is that in practical insight meditation, when they translate it from the Burmese, they, they switch from noting to noticing. And I think most people don't notice this. And noting means formally labeling and noticing is when the mind gets too quick, you, you drop the labeling and then you just start noticing. And I, I also explain this in my book that you just go for bare experiences as they're occurring one after the other, one by one as they occurred, as it says in the old texts. And so if you're not using any labels or expectations, you're just trying to dissect whatever comes in, six sense stores, three characteristics at the rate that it's coming in, which is fast. I mean, our, our experience is coming in at a very rapid clip and so how can you wake up to it if you're not having a mind that can go that quickly? Noticing all the intentions that lead to actions, noticing all the mental impressions that construct a sense of doer and knower and beer, noticing all of the little components of experience as we shift around between background sensations and foreground sensations and qualities of mind and all that. How can you wake up if you don't have a mind that can notice what's actually going on? And that is what's going on. So, you know, if people can type like, you know, 10 keystrokes a second, well, just to be able to do that you've got to be able to notice lots of little sensations intend to do each keystroke, have a sense of what you're going to be typing and where it's going. And also there are all the background framing sensations in the room. It's not like the room disappears. When you're typing, there's still all the sensations, of the keyboard, what you're, what's appearing on the screen, the knowledge of all of those things. And that iterative process is quick to do even basic tasks. And so to wake up intrinsically should seem to involve a mind that can go as fast as experience is occurring, kind of by definition. And so when, when people criticize um, uh, rapid uh, you know, awareness of what's going on in experience, like, well, then how are you supposed to wake up if you're missing most of what's going on? If we accept that that might be a, or that that could be a valid means to uh, wake up, as you say, do you also accept the possibility that that speed of noticing could uncouple one from that trajectory and, and, and uh, one ends up producing sensations to notice and engages in a kind of construction of experience. Slam shitting and the janas and yanas 
is presented in the article as evidence that you had taken that wrong turn. It seems to be this possibility of a young coupling is a key uh, criticism and leads to several other things. Having gained such a skill with construction, you're not only able to script yourself into Janas and Nanas, when you do come across the insight maps, you're able even more to, with this power of construction, conform yourself to that. And when you see the different stages of attainment, you're able to furthermore conform yourself to that. That's where the critique of calling you delusional comes in. That's where the, the critique that this is all in your imagination and has no value outside of your own imagination. These are not exaggerations of the critiques. Those are more or less direct quotes. Those are, yes, that's what he says. You've mentioned that your being exposed to the maps happened after you had gone through the territory that so accorded to the maps that it, it, it startled you, actually, and made you so passionate about these maps because you had experienced that territory before having been exposed to them. That's a significant point that you've made. But what about the actual source of it all, this fast noting technique? Do you acknowledge, is it vulnerable to this construction and delusion? Um, so... It is true that misconstruing attainments on the path of insight is a common hazard of map-based practice. And that's something I deal with all the time. So I, I get lots of emails every year, um, hundreds actually, where, oh, I've attained this, I've attained that. And from my point of view, they may have crossed the arising and passing away and they think they've attained paths. But even in, you know, in the text, it says, it's common for people in the arising and passing away to think this is a path. Um, you can find that in the Vasudhi Maga actually. So that's a chronically acknowledged problem that has been there since the beginning. But they actually have a lot of criteria by which you can actually then put this thing through its paces and see how it holds up. The first thing I would say is if this is not an, a level of attainment, then whatever it is is then off their maps. And I would highly recommend that people attain this because it's awesome. Like I've been vastly happier, vastly health healthier, vastly more functional. My meditative abilities have been vastly improved. My understanding of everything, my ability to concentrate, my ability to function, to uh, lead my life, to work in medicine, to work tirelessly hour for hour, day after day, to, to um, try to help people has been vastly improved by whatever this is. And so if you're saying this has nothing to do with Theravadan insight awakening, I would say, well, then... I, maybe you should think about cultivating this because it's doable and very cool as opposed to plenty of times, you know, you hear people, oh, there are no arahats today or is anyone an arahat today? Does anyone actually make those definitions? These are common critiques of the Theravada. Well, I can tell you this is doable and I have friends who have done it, who have replicated the experiment. And what's interesting is it holds up across stages, states, being sick, being well. It's not something I have to maintain. I wake up this way. I have dreams this way. I go to sleep this way. I stages move through it. It doesn't change it because it's it's the ungrasping of things. It's the non-stickiness of things. It's their immediate transience of things. It's the in the seeing, just the seenness of things. And so what's interesting is it meets a lot of the descriptions in the old text. And I read those descriptions and I go, yeah. And then by the way, it doesn't meet some other criteria. And so that's interesting. And that means there may be these variants that the Theravada um, either didn't want to describe because it didn't fit the story or just didn't describe for whatever reason. Um, I, I'm not sure we could all speculate. And then, but I would find this unbelievable, I find this unbelievably useful today, however I did it. And the, the other thing in terms of Mahasi Saidao construction, it is intrinsically a deconstructionist technique. You're taking reality apart to its sputtering fragments. It's not building up a state like in jhana. So in, in 
But e even in jhana, if you are intentionally trying to cultivate a state, as anybody who's done this will, will tell you, it doesn't last. It's not sustainable. You, you can't hold it you know, pa past a certain period of time. And then if you go to sleep, if you get sick, if you are distracted, whatever, the thing breaks. And that's the nature of jhana. So um, if I have managed to construct this experience that is now um, uh, you know, this dropping of these processes of identification and been able to sustain that construction for 17 years, then I will say I have construction abilities that are, he, he's giving me a very backward compliment because I would have constructionist abilities that are unprecedented because I don't know anybody who can have a state that's this good last 17 years, <laughs> right? And so I would go, okay, well, it's interesting. Um, but, you know, that that's not what this is. And so, well, and the, again, it, it, slam shifting jnanas and jhanas, as I say in the book, clearly is a shamatha style technique where you have an agenda for what your experience should be, and then you craft that. But it's not a progress technique. And if he read my book carefully with any lens other than one that was just out to attack me, he, he might have gotten thoughtful for a moment and gone, hey, wait a second. So you can, you can check out my book and read it for yourself. And that's in there, right? This is, has a shamatha feel. So you're, you're saying intentionally it's a, cu cultivating things. So you're saying it's not a good example that your right. uh, insight practice had fallen into a kind of constructivism uh, style because right. actually it is explicitly a constructive technique. You're, yes, you're, and it's in the book that that's a constructive technique. Not your attainments are evidence of your insight meditation have having gone off the rails doesn't necessarily follow because the the way you assess your attainments is not purely by your subjective experience but also by comparison to uh, certain external sources such as texts and, mm -hmm. and observing it over time and so on and so forth so you're saying that the and the, the experiences of other friends who have managed to replicate this and other major insight and and well-known teachers who have who've you know privately communicated with me and say hey that thing you've done yeah i agree that's what I've done too. So it's not just me, like as some person, you know, if there's delusion, it's, it's, it's incredibly widespread and involves a lot of people who are serious practitioners have read a lot of texts and done a lot of practice. And the other thing is like, if this is delusion, I'll take it because this is awesome. You know, whereas, whereas usually delusion in the classical sense of dissociation and delusion, which are two things he accuses me of, say I'm dissociating from my experience and becoming dissociated. This is highly integrative. There's this incredible level of clarity. When I read the symptoms of classical dissociation of memory fog, of kind of sense of not being in one's body, having a distance from things, having cognitive impairment, I've got none of that. And so, it, you know, he, he diagnoses me as being dissociated and delusional when you know that's not what's going on in terms of actual symptomatology. And, and delusions are, are very rarely highly um, enjoyable, right? So it's, it's very, delusions usually cause people anger or paranoia or a lot of you know, fear, most classical mental illness delusions or sort of levels of grandiosity that become dysfunctional, but I'm, I'm not dysfunctional or unusually grandiose. I'm happy, happy to say I'm a flawed mammal with all kinds of things who just happens to have this unusual technical ability from a meditative point of view that is reproducible. Okay, while we're on the subject of the question of whether or not you're delusional, are you happy enough that we've established that he's, he's claiming basically that your Mahasi technique caused you to dissociate and that the rest is sort of all your delusional fantasy, more or less. Right. And are you happy that we've addressed that? Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah. So another component of the argument to support the idea that you're delusional is that your teachers considered you to be delusional, actually. <laughs> Some and of them. Some of them did. That's true. He does selectively take the examples of people thinking I was delusional, which I'm yeah. very explicit about. After you uh, claimed to have attained stream entry, you, of course, then went to your teacher to confirm it. And to quote here from Analia's article, the meditation teacher referred to by Daniel Ingram repeatedly in his book, apparently considered by him to be the central authority for his approach to insight meditation. And this is Bill Hamilton we're talking about. Okay. Refused to accept his claim to have reached the first level of awakening as he, and then he quotes you here, believed that I was completely delusional, end quote. So th this seems to be another, uh, if you want, a part of the argument uh, to point to the possibility of you being delusional that even your, your own teachers from whom you learn the techniques and who you consider to be authoritative rejected your claims to awakening. Uh, what do you have uh, to say about that? <laughs> um, so that know, is actually a true part of my history that I very openly and straightforwardly relate. So I'm not trying to hide any of that. Like if you read my book, that's that's an important part of the narrative. Absolutely. Um, but it varies by the teacher, actually, what their reactions were. So Christopher Titmus, when I went to him um, about this, he just told me to let it settle. Right? And he didn't, uh, but he's not the kind of person who's going to say you have stream entry, or you don't have stream entry. So he didn't give me any unusual instructions other than let it settle. And I continued to, um, you know, talk about these things and describe things. Also to Sharda, who's also not one of these mappy people. So she's not going to say you have stream entry because she's actually coming from a Vedanta point of view. And I was on that retreat. It was a 27 day retreat. I was on it for another 21 days. And nobody was saying I was delusional, but they're also not the kind of people who would call stream entry because that's just not what they do. As uh, Christopher Titmus will tell you, if you ask him about paths, he say one path uh, for a lifetime, meaning the Buddhist path, the Noble Eightfold path is enough paths for me. He's just not a mappy guy, right? So, but, uh, but my energy was quite up because that's one of my qualities. I have a lot of power when I practice and can get into very energetic states. And he very rightly pointed out the need to sort of ground it down, which was just solidly good advice. Um, but he didn't make any commentary. Then when I actually later went to talk to Joseph Goldstein about it, he didn't say I was delusional or not delusional. He gave me this two pieces of advice. One is nail down what you got, which is an unusual piece of advice if you think I'm truly delusional, right? So I, I had an hour interview with him at IMS when I came back from India. Um, that would have been February of 1996, and told him my whole story. And he just said, nail down what you got and read this book. So he, he said, tracing back the radiance, you should read this. And uh, it's a good book, actually. And it talks about sort of integrating insights and stuff, which would also be sort of an unusual piece of advice if he thought I was um, delusional, I think. And he didn't say anything about being delusional. Then I got back, actually, and told Kenneth Folk about that. And Kenneth Folk said, well, I think that's stream entry. And then later on, he and Bill Hamilton began to think maybe it isn't stream entry. And then um, I would talk to Bhante Gunaratana about this kind of stuff. And he would just sort of talk about jhanas and three characteristics. And he didn't give any commentary pathwise or not, and also didn't say I was delusional. So actually, of the, four, uh, of the five teachers I was working with at the time, we have one who just gave basic advice, two who said, nail down what you got, this Joey G. Um, and read a book, cool. 
Uh, then we've got Bill Hamilton says delusional. We've got Kenneth Falk says stream entry, then delusional. Um, there's a history between the two of us. We're very close. So I think that's kind of like diagnosing family members you got to be careful with, right? So, you know, he was living with me at the time. Actually, I had taken him in when he was having some financial hard times and let him live with me, get him, get back on his feet, get a job, have a place to stay and all that. And um, so that was, that's a complicated story I don't want to go into because it's, that's, personal in a way that I think skews both of our objectivities on reading things. And uh, and then um, Bhante Gunaratana, who wasn't making comment, but he certainly wasn't saying I was delusional. So so he's selectively taking the, the people who had various reactions to that and um, saying things about them. And so anyway, but that's a more complete version of the story in terms of various opinions and reactions to my very open descriptions of what was happening. So by your report, one and then later a second of your teachers took you to be misclaiming your attainment at the very least. Now, that's not quite that's the same true. thing as calling you. That's not quite the same thing as calling you delusional. Oh, Bill uh, Hamilton did. Bill Hamilton actually called you delusional. Oh, yeah, yeah. OK, that's why I say so in the book. Right. You do, in, in fact. And that's the quote that he uses. Yes, of course. Uh, if, if you're going to go selectively, then, of course, he would use that quote against me. Of course, that makes um, sense. And you had three who made no comment. Either way, has anybody ever ratified or explicitly confirmed any of your attainments who you consider to be an authority or uh, qualified to do so? Well, this gets complicated. We'll tell the story of Saida Upandita Jr. because that's one of the most interesting. And this also is complicated. And so this is by way of open disclosure. So I go on him. Uh, I've, I've been practicing a long time now. I've learned a lot of capabilities. I've been what I think of as a stream mentor at this point for since early 1996. And this is now April of 2003, where between my um, medical school and residency, I went on a three-week retreat at the Malaysian Buddhist Meditation Center with Saito Upandita Jr., not Upandita's son, but uh, is a younger person who happens to have the same name. So they were using the designation junior to distinguish between the two. And um, so I went on retreat with him. And for the first week, I was doing things that, from my point of view, were impressive, but I had done thousands of times before. And I state this in the book. I was getting into formless realms. I attained to Naroda Samapati about three times. These are unusual states, which I can do. And these are, you know, true formless realms. My body would dissolve. There would be vast space, vast consciousness, detuned to just nothingness, and then something that's the detuning even from that. So real experiences that I had learned how to do. And I described this all this stuff to Saito Upandita Jr. in detail. And he would go, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Interesting. And I would describe insight cycles and fruitions. And then he would go, just this. So nice. Anytime. And so he didn't have any problem with any of my descriptions and any of the stuff he I was going through, and uh, which I described to him extensively. And um, and I continued to cycle through this. And then he, he highly recommended that I get my concentration strong, even stronger than it was. And so I just started going, well, what would be the strongest concentration I could get? It would be every sensation noticed to arise and vanish at every moment, at every sense door, regardless of what it is without expectation or maps or models or anything, just what is happening full on as fast as you can go and the mind can comprehend it. So this is not using fast noting to script anything or to create anything. This is a purely receptive, but 360 all sense doors, high resolution type of very direct practice with no noting or anything concepts being used, except 
three characteristics, which is canonical Buddhism, as canonical as you can get, and six sense doors, which is also as canonical and old as you can get in Buddhism, right? So this is the old stuff. And just very straight up, non-techniquey. And I went through lots of cycles and stages and wild things, but eventually came to this place where uh, all of a sudden everything flipped over and everything was just where it was. And I had the tremendous sense that what I was looking for had been found, which I still have to this day. 17 years later, I come to the exact same conclusion that, that this state, this sort of not state, but way of perceiving reality where everything is just now happening as it is, where it is, knowing itself, doing itself causally without any stable knower, doer, controller, watcher, beer in it is it's still the same. And it's highly recommended and delightful. And finally, when I flipped into this and I described this to Saito Upandita Jr., who's like, did you hear what he said? Did you hear what he said? And, um, and, uh, then he started telling stories about arhats, which he hadn't been telling stories about before. And so he told this, you know, they're not going to be direct about stuff, but he tells this story of this sort of long rambling story about this monk who visits another monk in Burma. He loved talking about Burma because he loved Burma and, and I was always telling stories about it. And at the end of that, he said, and the moral of the story is if you have powers or an arhat, don't go around telling people. And there are only three people in the room at this point, sort of a, a faith follower, none, or 10 precept, none. Um, not full non, obviously, because they don't do full non-ordination in that uh, lineage. Um, and and me and him. And he's like looking right at me telling the story. And then I said, you know, I, I haven't taught in years, really, because I felt like there was something about my practice that I really needed to work out. And I said, I, I'm thinking of teaching again. And he said, good. Um, and then he also said some other interesting things, like when I was had would, was going in and out of this stage, which was sort of unstable initially. Uh, he said, "You know, some people are arhats only on retreat." And he said that after this to me after I was describing stuff to him. And and so that's that's pretty unusual behavior for the abbot of a Burmese monastery and lineage to be doing. Um, and then apparently someone reached out and contacted him and said, "Did you give lineage transmission to Daniel Ingram?" And he said, no, uh, you know, and so, okay. But those are things he said to be straightforwardly on retreat. And, you know, that's the, the true true reporting of the incidents. But did he ever say, you are an arhat, I certify you're an arhat? No, he didn't do anything like that. But he did say the things that he said, so. You could explain why you say that it's an unusual thing for the abbot of a Burmese monastery to do. Are there cultural... Yeah. They talk around these things. Everything's in hints and implications. He said he practiced the way the Buddha did and that he sat until he attained realization. Right. Yeah. And perhaps it would be worth mentioning that that is a, if you want, a, a cultural and in, indeed actually doctrinal part of the tradition that one doesn't yeah. doesn't openly discuss those things, at least not outside the Sangha of ordained practice. Correct. Why didn't he just say it? Uh, are you reading well, into they it? They literally are forbidden from doing that. Yeah, yeah. So... You can take that for what it's worth. Regardless, I have plenty of people who have, you know, done the same thing. Uh, well, it's not a huge number, but enough that, I have, you know, who have done the same thing through similar techniques and investigations. And regardless of whether or not this meets all of Bhikkhu and Alia's criteria for what an arhat should be, it is a very transformative way of experiencing reality that does involve a tremendous amount of clarity and is a reproducible experiment, which empirically is very interesting in both senses of the word, empiricism. You know, it's a reproducible experiment, and it holds up in experience. And and so, you know, uh, we could quibble about all of the po politics of using a name like Arhat, 
just like we could quibble about the Dalai Lama's use of the word arahat and sort of the Mahayana's better kind of terms, or Kenpo Karthar Rinpoche, or another book from, you know, a foreword by his holiness, the Dalai Lama, whether or not using arahat, you know, the word in ways that are different from the way Bhikkhu and Elia would prefer is okay. All right. But um, at least if I'm explicit about the way I use that word and how it performs and how it doesn't, then hopefully I'm not confusing anybody because I do go way out of my way to define it precisely in terms of how it performs. And I tell this whole story in my book, uh, why I think it's there. And you can draw your own conclusions and do your own experiments and see if it's useful or not. Um, yes, you, you do uh, differentiate your definition of arhat from other definitions of arhats. And as you as you say in, in Buddhist uh, history of Buddhism, there are many different definitions and redefinitions. And yeah, free, and free, signing free. things as an arhat, by the way, is not weird. So the path of freedom of Maga by the arhat Upatisa is definitely well within specs, you know, in terms of what people do. So it's yeah. also traditional to do things like that, even if it does clearly annoy some people and, and freak some people out and get them angry. And that's a known risk. And so whenever you do something like this and make a linguistic choice like that, you know, um, you're definitely going to piss some people off, and I get why, and Biko and Alio is clearly among them. They consider them just unbelievably offensive, and I apologize for that, right? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a known, unfortunate side effect of doing something like this, but some other people will go, well, okay, maybe this guy's saying he knows what he's doing, and let's see if we can do this ourselves. Um, and since I'm not doing this for the money or for the power, I don't consider myself anybody's teacher, I don't take formal students, you know, I, I don't even take money for teaching this stuff. I, I give away my book for free. Like, you know, I'm really just trying to help like other people helped me. And what really helped me when I was in some of those stages, when people would say declarative things like Christopher Titmus one time on the cushion said, this Christopher is not suffering. You know, so Christopher Titmus, who I considered an authority, said that when someone asked him. And what was also interesting is I knew some stories about his life. So I knew he um, had had sex with people after his you know, six-year thing. He had a child. He had been in relationships. He had written passionate poetry. So if you look at books like um, The Profound and The Profane, which I don't know if you, you can even buy anymore, there's some, there's some pretty racy stuff in here. And it's Christopher Titmus's poetry written after his days as a monk and his attainments of what he declared. I mean, if you're saying, I am not suffering in a Buddhist context, you're calling yourself an arhat, right? Even though he doesn't use path language, well, sometimes he does. And, you know, and then he would talk about, you know, really profound appreciation of beautiful women and stuff like that in a book like this. And so I was also influenced by those sorts of examples that were free to really explain what was going on and throw off some of the dogma and have their own interpretations. And he was the first pe person I ever went on retreat with. And right. so, yeah. So you're saying that calling yourself an Arhat isn't without historical precedent and that redefining the term Arhat, which you do do in the books, you say, I'm calling myself an Arhat, but what I mean by it is this, right. is also has historical precedent yes. there for calling up. Okay, so, so that somewhat, uh, I, it seems, is to address the question of, well, why do you call yourself an arhat if you don't agree with the definition? Well, his definitions, the Dalai Lama's, yes. right? Or, you know, Kempo Karthar's or some various definitions in the old texts or the Bahia of the Bark Cloth Sutta versus some of the other ones. And even again, Analio doesn't agree with all the definitions because I, I asked him about some of the weirder criteria and he said, oh, no, 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 no. Like, no, that's, that's not old enough.
to quote Analio again, he says, undeterred by the lack of recognition by this and also by other teachers, Daniel Ingram kept viewing himself as progressing further and further along the path to full awakening. So here he's advancing the argument that in spite of the lack of confirmation from authorities, you persisted in your delusional series of awakenings. I, I think that's the implication, it seems. And, and your response that's to that is... That's what he says. Uh, and so your, your response is that although you haven't had any authorities explicitly ratify your levels of awakening in a sort of unambiguous and provable sense, you have what you consider to be the culturally or traditionally appropriate ways of someone doing that. You have received that and you've given some examples of that. So that, that seems to be a response to, to that uh, part of the argument. Is that fair? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And a number of other teachers who you've read books by probably and heard of who've come, you know, we've had private conversations. I just can't out them. And that's unfortunate, but those are, you know, those are private conversations where they, they don't want to take the amount of heat that I've taken for this, but they're willing to privately support me. And again, it's, it's annoying evidence because then, you know, I could just be making it up or whatever, because I can't tell you who they are because they don't want to, they don't want to take this kind of heat, but it's understandable. They wouldn't want to take this kind of heat, right? Because this is a pretty, you know, from my point of view, a pretty vicious attack. And is that something you really want to do if if you're relying on donations or selling your book or whatever for, you know, your livelihood, you know, and you're, you're a teacher, would you want to subject yourself to this kind of thing? Well, no. So there are market forces that keep people from talking honestly about this stuff because they know that the orthodoxy, now they have even have further confirmation that the orthodoxy will literally try to take you down. I'm blessed in that I'm retired and I don't need the money so I can talk freely, right? Because my livelihood is not dependent on donations or people buying a book or anything. Um, but other people who are in that situation, like this scares them. And I think it really shuts down part of the conversation when people are willing to do literally attempts at personal character assassination and cancel culture, which is explicitly what he said he wanted to do. He wanted me to be utterly discredited so nobody would listen to me. Um, and that's why they put my name in the keyword uh, searches. And that's cancel culture. And that is intimidating. And that's frightening. And when it's done with people with his level of scholastic capability in major journals, right? Do we really want to be having, you know, that kind of culture? Or do we want to be having more honest, open, human, realistic conversations about the range of what can occur phenomenologically, and what people may be able to do, and how to do that, and what can go wrong and what can go right. And I would say this is this is a chilling article for a lot of my peers about what the establishment and you know senior mindfulness people, whoever they, one person or multiple people, depending on which time I talked with him, you believe, um, you know, would it basically you know hire or sort of not hire him, but um, encourage him to do this sort of thing? I mean, that's chilling, and I was willing to be very, very vulnerable, very flawed, very you know uh, open about the highs and the lows and the strange and the complexity in my book. And I think this really shuts that down and, and tries to enforce an idealism on practice, a sort of a, a restrictive purity on practice and the language we're even allowed to use for that, that I consider really in and of itself toxic and unfortunate. And I can get why the orthodoxy does it, but um, phew, you know, I don't think so helpful. Certainly, uh, you, you said you have email exchange, you've, you've quoted from your email exchange, which you've had permission to quote from, that states the uh, goal of the article was to uh, to take you down, to discredit you, and, mm -hmm. and so that no one would no one would take you seriously. 
He seems to have successfully trained himself, this is about you, in enacting the stages of his own model in practice. The degree of inner dissociation that can result from employing the noting technique confirms the subjective impression of having reached deep realization. At the same time, due to the constructed and ultimately fictitious nature of the resultant meditation experiences, genuine and lasting transformation does not take place. The meditative experiences constructed with the help of a self-made map serve as sufficient grounds to discard the entire insight tradition from early to contemporary Buddhism as fundamentally mistaken to the extent of representing himself as one who smashes dishonest and harmful claims on the rocks of reality. So here we're seeing once again the theme of argument that the meditation technique itself has resulted in a constructed and he says ultimately fictitious experiences and then is now moving into part of what constitutes your redefinition of what an arhat is and that's whether or not an arhat in your case you, you, you describe an arhat as a perceptual shift which you call a technical arhat in the traditional texts often is accompanied by uh, various degrees of moral purification or perfection of character and other sorts of traits. Unless you believe like the Mahayana, so the Mahayanas would say all kinds of disparaging things about that model. Um, and so saying disparaging things about those kinds of models is not new. So for example, one of the books I've got here, you know, talks about arhats like jumping like monkeys because they haven't eliminated some monkey karma from when they were monkey or saying disparaging things about females, for example, they might do because um, they hadn't eliminated that, that kind of uh, karma. And so you can find the Mahayana is very willing to critique the Arahat, whereas the Theravada obviously is not. And, and this is, again, an old game that is played. Uh, my critiques and criteria just happen to be somewhat different. But when he says, you know, critiquing um, modern and contemporary Buddhism, if you look at the book, say, A Path with Heart, and I got to be careful dragging Jack Kornfield into this, because we've had some exchanges about this whole article and thing as well. And uh, he appreciates wanting to keep some of the traditional insight stage uh, criteria very clean, and then just adding chakras and realms and stuff onto it, as well as other things that are not on those maps, whereas I advocate for expanding the maps out. Anyway, um, but Jack, if you look in his uh, chapter on awakening, uh, you know, describes all these different awakenings. And is Jack contemporary Buddhism or not? Is he a fusion tradition or not? What is he? And you have to ask the same of me. I say explicitly in my book and my countless references in the book that I'm some sort of a hybrid, right? I'm not early Buddhism. I never claim to be purely early Buddhism by any means. And in fact, explicitly claim the reverse. And even contemporary Buddhism, which I think books like this are in some kind of way a part of, because he describes maps of the elders and he describes genres and he describes, you know, factors of awakening and he describes you know, standard techniques, and he uses a lot of Buddhist texts, but also other texts, Sufi and Christian and, and others. Uh, you know, we're, we're sort of, we're not all the same. And so to say I'm dismissing contemporary Buddhism is also a strange thing, because he's also dismissing lots of contemporary Buddhism. He's dismissing actually staggering amounts of Buddhism. And he does this funny thing where he said, you know, happy to follow Vajri, you know, he's happy with me following Vajrayana or Mahayana teachings, you know, because those are beautiful, but they have nothing to do with Theravada Buddhism, which is interesting because they would say they do have something to do with it, either a reaction to it, an enhancement of it, uh, uh, a revision of it, uh, a something. Um, 
but they also go way out of their way to redefine arhats in ways he would not like. So he's happy for me to use Vajrayana and Mahayana frameworks when it suits him, ignoring the fact that if you look at those Vajrayana Mahayana frameworks, there would be a lot there that he could take serious issue with. And I kind of wonder why he's not attacking the rest of them. Why is he not attacking all these other people? You know, am I just an easy target because I'm not nearly as popular as lots of the other people who do the same things I'm talking about? I don't know. But um, anyway. Well, we can speculate about that perhaps towards the end. I don't know. Uh, some some other parts of the article, I don't know which of these you would like to address, your misunderstanding of uh, the different stages of the progress of insight, uh, even by the late stage formulation he brings up, your use of the term, term dark night and dark night of the soul, which he brings forth as inappropriate, uh, but that's perhaps a perennialist clash there, but also uh, your misuse of the term reveals you have not read St. John of the Cross. <laughs> uh, well... Uh, I can read that part. Yeah, yeah, uh, he does say that explicitly, which is yeah. weird because I literally actually have read this book. I own this book. Well, I've, I've actually gone through it a number of times. It's just, yeah. a, it's it's a weird claim, right? While we're waiting yeah. for you to find the quote, I will just put up the dark night. So this is literally like the description of Theravadan insight stages, but Jack Cornfield himself in A Path With Heart terms it the dark night. Right, so that was normal. Well, and I, I went to IMS and was influenced by those people. That was just normal linguistic thing to do back then, you know, right. and even still now, like, and it wasn't strange behavior. He doesn't like it, but then he doesn't like Joseph Goldstein using the term, I'm sure. And then there's this alliance between mindfulness and the, the old school people that may be strategically useful for certain people such as myself, but in the long term, probably not sustainable, given the large number of differences and, and ultimately structural tensions there. Whether or not it's appropriate to use the term is in a certain sense, uh, well, he actually himself says, um, this in itself is rather a minor point, but shows that Daniel's Ingram's assertions about St. John are not based on an actual acquaintance with the latter's writing. I, by the way, I totally get why he says that. And I totally understand if you're coming from a very strict phenomenological point of view, which is a reasonable point of view and a very strict linguistic point of view and a very strict um, cultural point of view, you do have to squint a little bit, or maybe a lot sometimes, to uh, assume that this is talking about the exact same territory. That's very fair, and I, I will give him that. Um, uh, as reading it from a per perennialist eye, a universalist eye, uh, it's easy to do. Reading it from a very specific, well, you know, he says this about God, and Buddhism is not about God, and he says this about, you know, uh, you know, various sensations and feelings and various things like that are not at all in the old text. And so you cannot possibly be talking about the old territory. If you've got that lens and framework, it's very easy to make Biko and Alio's arguments. And that tension is real. So I, I will I will give him that. That said, from the culture I was coming from, as in, you know, it was just considered normal behavior to associate these two. And you as a practitioner will have to see if that's useful. Um, and this is the kind of thing we could actually do science on that would be better than the two of us arguing over textual readings. We could put, you know, Carmelites in one, you know, retreat center and right next door have a bunch of meditation practitioners doing whatever, you know, early Buddhist meditation practice, you know, being mindful, noticing three characteristics, whatever. Um, 
and uh, and see if there is some sequential relationship of the unfolding of their practices and how those are the same and how those are different. And to try to tease out physiologically what's happening, we could do fMRI, EEG, whatever kind of brain imaging. We could try to figure out if there under, is an underlying physiological basis, which is the, sort of the clinical rubber meets the road of it, or are these distinct processes? Do they involve some similar brain centers and some different ones and they're connected differently or whatever, maybe different neurotransmitters, I don't know. We, we could check, but this is something we could actually do science on, and that would be better than the two of us just getting into a pissing match about which frame you want to read these texts through and which underlying paradigms. And so what I'm trying to do right now is actually support the funding of the science that would lead to a better understanding of are these similar or distinct processes, and if so, in what clinically or practically meaningful ways. So I think it's a question that, that our disagreement clearly shows there's room for, for people to disagree, and then maybe we can get better, better data to help resolve some of those arguments from a functional point of view. Yeah, so like I mentioned, a few of the other points there are um, whether or not you've uh, correctly understood the map, of, the map of insight in its various different stages, this idea of the use of the dark night, also the idea of the validity of, or, or invalidity of decoupling awakening from purification. The quote here relevant is for someone who's evidently not reached a level of awakening himself, this is about you, to disbelieve the possibility of reaching awakening is in itself not surprising. A simile from the discourses illustrates such confusion with the example of congenitally blind persons who claim that there cannot be any colors as they've never seen any. And also there's some points later that your claims of, uh, which is a, a key part of the narrative of your story in the book, that the maps are uh, not as openly disclosed as they should be, and that there should be, there should be, uh, in a certain sense, you have a dream that you know, medical professionals and psychiatric professionals would be aware of these maps because, from your perennialist view, uh, they're the sorts of things that are likely to happen to people in all kinds of situations. Uh, there's also the criticism of you that you conflate everyday experiences, watching television or uh, having a dream, with the sorts of uh, deep meditative experiences that are described in in the uh, in the texts. That's a, a range of some of the other uh, criticisms in the article. I'm not yeah. sure which uh, which of those you'd like to address. Now, let's take all of them. Start with the first one again, because the the problem is when you mention three critiques, and I start thinking of my arguments, and then I, I can. It's easy to forget what the first one was. Sure. So the first one is early on in the article. He goes through several of the stages of the map of insight, the nanas, and argues that you have fundamentally misunderstood them. And uh, related to the question of purification, the, the notion that this shouldn't be uprooting defilements or anything like that is, is really a wild claim and clearly then has nothing to do with the, you know, the, the fundamental premises of Theravada Buddhism. But I actually addressed that extensively in my book in a way that he very much just dodges dealing with. So I actually do think they can um, in some ways, purify or transform or eliminate ignorance from uh, multiple aspects of experience emotionally, perceptually, and those can have profound implications for the emotional life. We just slice that a little bit differently. And, and he says, he, he makes a straw man of my argument saying that it has nothing to do with this, is, is just, uh, you, you can't have read my book and come to that conclusion because it very specifically states in the whole section on the emotional models um, that uh, while I may still be able to feel feelings, the perception of them is extremely different. There are these wispy little things in space, a few little sensations here with a high degree of transience, which is incredibly 
transformative and there's a straightforward directness of perception that allows um, a lot of perspective and proportionality to emotions, which is incredibly beneficial on an emotional front. It just doesn't work exactly the way the old texts say, where like I could never have an angry thought or I could never, you know, um, want anything, for example. And so uh, I critique some of the traditional ways that the um, the Theravadan techniques are supposed to fun fundamentally, eventually perform that are described in pretty extreme terms in a few places. And so uh, he's making a straw man argument because if you read my book, it's it's in there. The whole section in chapter 37 on the emotional models talks about all of those complexities and controversies and why I think um, they're clinically problematic from a, a pra practical point of view because actually I will claim it's his maps that lead to delusion and suppression and dissociation where people are practicing with explicit goals that they wouldn't have any negative feelings. And then I know plenty of practitioners who have gotten into the problem of, well, I'm not supposed to have any negative feelings. And so they just start pushing them all away and pushing them down. And then clearly are, are manifesting the, the behaviors and speech of negative feelings, but they say, oh, I'm not having any anger. I'm not having any whatever. And you can look at them and go, you're angry, dude. And they're like, no, I'm not, you know, but they're clearly angry and you go, okay. So, so I would actually say it is that the high ideals that, that advocate for the pure and total elimination of any of these kinds of thoughts or feelings that are the ones that are more likely to cause scripting and delusion as people mimic those high ideals of practice. And so again, we're, we're coming at this from diametrically opposed points of view. I mean, it's almost like these days we're like, you know, some 40% of the US thinks the election was stolen or something. And you're just looking at them going, how we're living in totally different reality tunnels at this point. And I would say that his maps create a reality tunnel as much as he thinks mine do. And obviously resolving those is challenging, but I think where we could do better than this sort of textual or you know expert opinion debate is honest perspective clinical trials and behavioral studies. So we have behavioral studies and biological measures that can measure emotions and emotional responses to things. That's something we have as science. And we could take, you know, let's say he could identify 10 people he believes are arhats, and I could take 10 people or something I think who have done something like what I've done, and we could performance test them. We could scan them. We could put them in various stress tests or situations, or my famous hottie in a hot tub experiment, you know? Um, and the hottie in a hot tub experiment is some variant of take a paid, um, extremely attractive professional uh, who's uh, incentivized to have them perform uh, um, sensuous actions, uh, put them alone, put the test subject alone with this person in a hot tub, give them, say, you know, like uh, half a dose of rohypnol and a hit of MDMA, and just see what happens you know, and just objectively see, is it true they literally under no circumstances could engage in any sexual arousal or sexual activity? And that's performance testable by modern science. And so I would say, come on, bring it. Let's do the experiment. I'm very willing to fundraise for that. If you can find the people who are willing to do this, let's go. And we can actually see if this works or not. And if it does, okay, cool. You, you've done something interesting. And if not, well, then we'll learn something. But that would actually be science, which is what he calls for in the end. And I would love to do the science on this in a way that was actually rigorous. Okay, let's address the point that you conflate deep meditative experiences as described in these texts with sorts of passing everyday experiences, uh, watching television and so on. Uh, for instance, the knowledge of fear, the fear stage, you discuss a classic, as you say, classic fear stage event, 
where a friend of yours was on retreat with you and had an overreaction to mm -hmm. the available food, not being able to meet their dietary needs. And you point to that as being a classic fear stage behavior. And Analio says, well, this sort of thing doesn't actually have anything to do with meditation necessarily. Anyone facing inadequate food supplies uh, might feel that kind of a fear response. And in talking about equanimity, you talk about, this is a quote from your book, high equanimity can happen in many unexpected situations, such as just doing ordinary things like watching TV. Analio points out that, well, here once again, the sorts of what you might be imagining is equanimity, watching the television is really not necessarily the same sort of thing as the stage, <clears throat> the knowledge of equanimity is described in the text. There's this conflation here between everyday experiences and the deep meditative experiences. And you don't know the difference because you haven't had the deep meditative experiences. That's why you're <laughs> making that mistake. Well, I think, um, I think that's fair enough. Uh, that's what he's saying. Uh, that's what so, he's saying. Yeah, and I, I know it's, it's, it, it seems a little pointed to say it, but nonetheless, someone's got to say it. And in fact, your crediting of childhood dreams uh, and other experiences, sort of daily kind of everyday level of experiences as, as constituting the arising and passing uh, and so on to support your claim of uh, having achieved stream entry. Of course, you need to have then have, have passed these stages. So you make these sorts of claims. What's your response to, to that angle of argument that Analio makes? Yeah, so starting with the fear one. So this retreat center is the Malaysian Buddhist Meditation Center. And the friend, I was actually not on retreat with them. They went there on their own. But I had been there um, not too far before that. And I know the center. And I actually um, uh, been there uh, twice before. And the food is amazing. And they have a, a tremendous number of fruits and vegetables and other things that are vegetarian and vegan. Um, they had tofu, they had plenty of things you can get protein from. And this was not a fear they had until they reached the fear stage. So this is not actual food deprivation. This is a fear that they had that arose in a situation where I know for certain the diet is beyond adequate and into the realm of like, you know, you can't go to a buffet this good. I mean, it's it's their their spread is ridiculous, like unbelievable. I, if it's if it's still anything like that, it's one of the the coolest points about going to MBMC, other than the some um, sometimes great instruction and beautiful facility, is that the food is awesome. These these uh, grandmothers that cook there, they're just unbelievable. And I was vegetarian when I went there. Uh, and I had no problem getting a thoroughly adequate diet. And so this is actually a stage-based thing. And I will quote again, bringing Jack Cornfield into this, um, you know, who was a Theravadan monk for years. And I know, sorry, Jack, if I'm bringing you into this fight too much, my apologies, but your quotes are super useful for my purposes. And I was very influenced by your work. And so it's understandable. Um, you know, and this is page 150 of A Path with Heart. I'll just read the quote directly. We feel that if we walk outdoors, something could run over us. We feel if we take a drink of water or the microbes in it could kill us, everything becomes a source of possible death or destruction in this phase of the dark night, meaning Theravadan insight stages. People experience these feelings in many ways as oppression, claustrophobia, oppression, tightness, restlessness. And if you look in the old text, actually, even in the Vasudhimaga, the, the range of ways this is described is extremely wide. And so, and it was a classic, in, you know, after the A&P where you would expect him to have the fear nyana. And so he's, he again, just doesn't know the situation. B is reading it wrongly and C, there's ample evidence in the old text and in contemporary texts from other people who know these stages well and have literally been Theravada monks for years and stuff that um, 
this can happen in daily life. And also, if you look in books like, uh, here we go, which he wouldn't like, obviously, but A Manual of Insight. So if you go look at A Manual of Insight, um, you know, which is by Mahasi Saito, you can find that he talks about people able to go through stages that even get fruitions during the activities of daily life. So that's actually something that is a technical skill, which I would push back to Analio and say, if you never got to the stage of practice where you could actually get fruitions in daily life or go through insight stages in daily life, then I would ask you to up your game, do some more retreats, maybe a little more precise mindfulness and see if you can get to a level where you can actually understand what it is that those of us who consider ourselves technical practitioners um, are able to do and experience. I think it's also worth mentioning for that particular stage of the knowledge of fear that Analio has argued elsewhere about whether or not that should really be there and, and, and how present that was in, in early Buddhism. We don't need to necessarily go into that now, but it's worth, I think, mentioning that he's not totally sold on that idea going all the way back. In his uh, 2019 article, also in Mindfulness, The Insight, Knowledge of Fear and Adverse Effects of Mindfulness Practices, he lays out quite an argument uh, using other textual sources to suggest that, that fear as a inevitable or, or was perhaps a later development by early Buddhist standards? Um, by earliest Buddhist standards, it is definitely a later development, which from clinical developmental standards, I would say is an improvement. And in terms of empirical standards today, um, I've been on lots of retreats. I've, I've spent over a year of my life on retreat. I've helped numerous people on retreats. I've gotten to hear tons of other people's reports of retreats. I've read literally thousands of reports of people's retreats on the Dharma Overground. I've talked to, I talked to up to a few hundred people a year about their retreat and meditative experiences. So for example, just yesterday, I had seven and a half hours of back-to-back -back calls for free, talking to people about their insight stages and experiences that they had had on various, mostly Theravadan insight retreats from various traditions, including Thai forest, also Burmese, also Sri Lankan, also Goenka, et cetera, and in other contexts. And the stages of the dark night are weirdly predictable. And is it true that you don't find them in quite the same way in early Buddhist texts? That's true, but that's true of all of these stages. So if he's, he's, if he's arguing the argument, the insight stages, you know, as soon as you say insight stages, you have to be at least as late as the Pati um, Sambi Damaga, which is clearly late stage Buddhism, you know, attributed to Sariputta, but almost certainly not written by him because he would have been long dead by the time it was written, probably somewhere in the uh, first or second century BCE, depending on who you believe. And may, it was, may have even been a contemporary of the Arhat Upatissa, depending on who you believe. But you find, even particularly in the Vimudi Maga, like endless talk of the danger of sensual experiences. And here's one of the problems, because Buddhism is quite explicit. If you pay attention, you will see the danger in family life. You will see the danger in sex. You will see the danger, you know, um, in uh, worldly attachments. You will see the danger in cows and work and wives and husbands and children. You will see the danger in that. And that is all over early Buddhism. So it's funny when like the mindfulness people temporarily strategically ally themselves with, uh, you know, uh, sort of a, a person like Biko Analio to, to, you know, attack somebody like me. It's like, wait a second, kids, do you know what you're getting yourself into when you do this? Because that is all over the place that of course you renounce the world that is full of suffering and all this stuff to cling to and relationships and sex and all that stuff. Oof, oof, you know, not clean, not good, not pure, not the best, not the, not the highest path. 
And that if you pay attention, of course, you will intrinsically understand the danger in all of these things. And you, the, the Moody Maga may be the best at that because it's just page after page after page of that. But you find it in even the Dhammapada as well, which is clearly early Buddhism by any's, anybody's stretch of any imagination. It's one of the earlier texts and in parts of the Udana and you know all throughout the canon, Jiminy Kaya, this is classic Buddhism. And so that sense that one would fear these things, one would fear the, the decomposition of the flesh and not identify with it. One would fear this aging sack of old bones and weeping sores and openings, you know, that they describe the body as in the just disparaging terms. That's old school Buddhism, man, like period. And to to say that um, that's that to fear these things, to find danger in them, to find them as insubstantial, impermanent, not a source of refuge, something to be renounced, to be disidentified with, that's Buddhism 101. And when mindfulness then goes into this, is it true that, that mindfulness can be Buddhism, which John Kabat-Zinn kind of basically says it is just right in the first chapters of this, you know, these kinds of books, you know, and if so, then if Buddhism is true, and, and particularly early Buddhism is true, do you have this problem where people who are doing mindfulness practices will come to see the danger and fear identification with or clinging to any of these worldly things? Well, I mean, that is kind of early Buddhism 101, and if that's true, then we should tell people about that clinically and ethically. If it's true that you, the Buddha is, is usually interpreted as saying universalist things, right? Usually the, one of the great claims of the Buddha is that I am a universal monarch. I teach universal truths. I you know, expound universal doctrines that are true, not just in a Theravada branded context, but generally, if that's true, then we should be telling mindfulness people that these are potential things that could happen, that you could come to fear or become disinterested or see the danger in relationships. This could be stabilizing to your life. As if you go on the Dharma Overground, you will literally see thousands of posts about this, thousands of posts of people suddenly becoming interested in jobs, education, training, want to wander off to Asia. And this is also Buddhism 101, becoming afraid of these things, becoming dispassionate towards these things. And this being a classic development that was anticipated by straightforward Buddhist thought, that's something we have to wrestle with and go, wait a second, which is true. Like you can't have it both ways that mindfulness does nothing and that Buddhism is also true. Like, how does that work? Like, how can someone wrap their head around that conceptually? Like, that's that's a feat of immense um, logical nimbleness to try to figure out how in the world those two things are possible in the same universe. It seems you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, that the idea that the stage of fear may in fact appear at least in the clothing of everyday concerns overblown such as microbes and water as Jack Cornfield was saying and so on is something that's established by contemporary writers and, and also writers of the past and that then my response as well Analio argues that that emphasis on fear as, as being a necessary or a likely part of the path is a late stage a later stage development at least in terms of the maps uh, and then you're saying well be that as it may there's plenty of related and similar warnings and reports in those early texts. Is in that fact, they would consider this a feature, not a bug. So the whole reason to have a renunciate tradition is basically that if you pay attention to the world, you will see you should fear it. You should fear relationships and clinging to children and being bogged down and attached to all that stuff. You should fear their dissolution. You should fear death. 
And so, of course, if you were paying attention, you would enter a renunciate tradition where you give up all of those, those traps, all of those traps of Mara, all of those things that keep you bound on the wheel of suffering, all of those attachments, because you would fear them binding you on the wheel of suffering. That's Buddhism. Like, you, you, there's no way, I'm sorry, like no amount of textual athletics is going to get you around that being core Buddhism. And because that's what the whole point of the orders was, is that, of course, if you were paying attention, then you would naturally renounce all of those dangerous things, you would fear them. And that's, that's through the, that's through the canon. I'm sorry, like, come on, man, please, you know, let's be real here and honest. Okay. So you're saying that's fear, that's the fear stage in its nascent form. Um, sure. Analio does also argue, and of course, uh, to the degree to which I represent his his view, uh, it, it's due to my limited, you know, my very limited understanding of his view. It's, it's cer certainly not comprehensive uh, of his view. He does say that the Buddhist path avoids extremes of revulsion and fear, uh, as well as clinging and attachment. But he uses the body as an example in one of his papers, not uh, overly sensually attached to the body, but also not disgusted by it. In the Maps of Insight, fear is a temporary stage that one passes yes. through. The outcome of the path is, at least in the early texts, presented as renunciation. That seems to be more of a sort of permanent feature of one's view, as opposed to a, a stage one passes through. So if you look back at the, the Vinaya and the early st stages of the Buddhists, they were simultaneously, some of them super renunciate, some of them very lustful. That's why all the rules started coming down 20 years after the order was created. Uh, they themselves go through lots of stages of both disgust and fear. Some of them kill themselves when they hear certain teachings about the body being disgusting, as Bhikkhu Anelio mentions in one of the articles. Uh, and uh, you know, and so the Buddhism, Buddha himself was even fine tuning apparently as he went, like trying to figure out how to calibrate the message so that it didn't cause too much trouble. But some of the messages that explicitly cause the trouble are still in there, right? You find these in the old texts and practices. And, um, and so even in the old Sangha, we find the, a wide swinging of what actually happened in practice in, in uh, the descriptions of the lives of the monks and nuns. You can find that. And it is true. We, I would agree with him that the eventual outcomes can be this extreme degree of clarity, but yet not um, exaggeration, this, this proportionality, this balance. And I would agree with him. There, we're on a similar page about what the outcome is. Right. And so experientially, that's my experience. That's what I think this leads to. But that it can be pretty wild swinging along the way as you eventually come to this fine-tuned mature balance is also demonstrated both in the stories of the Vinaya and plenty of other stories in the, the, the suttas, you know, and uh, and so and in the maps as they developed and they actually got more and more and more of this. And so I, I would say that again, with that clinical development of appreciating the wild swings that can happen along the path as they got, I would say, more and more data and more and more people practicing um, and had more people who were willing to write about that. Uh, you know, again, even if you, whether you like the early stuff or the later stuff, that's still in there. It's just a question of how it's phrased and the formalism with which the stages are described. What about equanimity, your assertion that high equanimity to quote you, can happen in many unexpected situations, such as just doing ordinary things like watching TV. Is this an example of you conflating a regular uh, mind state with the deep meditative attainment of uh, a state such as the knowledge of equanimity? 
So by definition, basically, essentially, fruitions, which are a very specific technical attainment that write specific technical changes on the brain that are uh, studyable, observable, um, repeatable, uh, by definition, they come out of the stage of equanimity, if you're looking at the maps that explain the stages of equanimity. So by that point, we're talking late Buddhism, and we've, we're using a, a late Buddhist frame. But if we're going to use a late Buddhist frame, conformity knowledge can literally take anything as object, as can equanimity. That's one of its strengths. So equanimity is equanimous to whatever is arising, be they daily life activities or other stages. And when people get into the sun retreat or in daily life, it's just normal for it to, it, it, it's unconcerned very much with the specifics. And one of the interesting characteristics of a stream enter is that they cycle. So if you get stream entry, you then are naturally cycling through insight stages. That's what, what entering the stream means is you're now, this territory now just sort of is happening and it happens much more rapidly. That's one of the better criteria for stream entry is that now you can sit down on the cushion, you can literally drop down into the A and P and then out into dissolution, maybe in a single breath, be up through fear, misery, disgust, desire for deliverance, synchronize the brain, you know, an equanimity, brain comes out, everything's wide open flowing, do, do, do three doors, get your hit. Obviously, it's usually a little bit slower than that, maybe minutes, maybe an hour or something. But this can also happen during daily life. And even Mahasi Saidao in his Manual of Insight talks about fruitions happening, you know, when doing walking practice or when, you know, brushing one's teeth or eating a meal. And so by definition, you know, if, if once you're using that kind of map language, the conformity knowledge is coming out of equanimity. And if you can, so by definition, if you can attain to these things, you know, during a meal or other activities or driving down the road, which has happened to me or other situations, then you have to be in equanimity for that to happen because that's the level of mind and clarity at which conformity knowledge comes. And so this is just straightforward and also reproducible in experience. You can notice one can get fruitions in daily life, some people with that level of technical skill. And again, I would push back to Analio and say, hey, if you've never come to the place where you can actually do this stuff in daily life or have fruitions in daily life or get to conformity knowledge on ordinary activities, well, this is a technical learnable skill that just like as a person who hasn't seen colors yet can't imagine they can exist. This is normal in the tradition I come from and a normal thing you can learn to train to do. And literally tens of thousands of people in Mahasi Sadr tradition have learned to do this. And it just happens to line up beautifully with the descriptions um, of the insight stages and the doors and the sequence that you find in places like the Abhidhamma and even the textual, uh, you know, which are canonical, the late canonical um, Patisambi Damaga. And you just go, okay, well, very straightforward. And so that, that equanimity should require specific objects is basically antithetical to the entire concept of equanimity. It's equanimous to whatever arises. That's its nature. That's why it's so cool. Equanimity, of course, being uh, towards the very end of the progressive insight map. Towards the beginning, uh, you write that the first three stages in particular commonly arise during daily life, as plenty of activities in daily life cultivate factors such as precise attention and concentration that are sufficient to generate these insights. And mm -hmm. Analio, commenting on that, says, such conflation shows the degree to which the proposed ideas differ from the traditional understanding of the insight knowledges, which are products of deep meditation in intensive retreat conditions. So here we have early insight stages that you're claiming can happen in daily life, but presumably without very much meditative horsepower going, much, much skill or absorption uh, built up. And you're saying that actually daily life can produce the degree of concentration necessary to breach the thresholds of these first three stages. Is this a conflation here? Are you underestimating the first three uh, insight stages? 
So the extreme irony of this is this is in the journal Mindfulness. The only way mindfulness is able to work is with the first insight stage where you can see thoughts as thoughts rather than be contracted into them, right? The whole platform, the whole basis, the, the only reason these books have value is that ordinary people can learn to do this. You can actually learn to see thoughts as objects, you know, John Kabat-Zinn, that's, and, and so if, if ordinary people off of intensive Theravadan insight retreats could not learn to see thoughts as thoughts, and physical sensations as physical sensations, which is the literal definition of the first insight stage. If you couldn't do this and you couldn't you know, shift people from a way where they're contracted into their thoughts, they're taking thoughts as I, me, mine, to shifting to be able to see them as objects, mindfulness would be impossible as a technique and have no clinical value because that's its literal entire basis that you can see pain as pain rather than my pain or it, it just becomes the pain, a physical sensation arising and passing dependent on conditions, a thought arising and passing dependent on conditions. These are literally the definitions in the old text. This is literally what mindfulness uses. And so if you want to literally dismiss the capabilities and abilities of meditative attainments of a $4 billion a year industry and literally tens of millions of people who follow these techniques, well, that's a pretty bold and gutsy thing to do that say none of these people have ever seen a thought as a thought. They've never seen a physical sensation as a physical sensation. They've never seen a thought lead to a feeling, a physical sensation lead to a thought, that they've never seen cause and effect, that they've literally never been able to see any of these come and go or rise and pass or cause suffering or happen naturally, which are the three characteristics, to literally be so arrogant as to dismiss that entire thing as ever being possible in any context of an entire... Theravadan Insight Retreat is just mind-boggling. I'm just like, <laughs> okay, wait, and in the journal Mindfulness, seriously, you're doing that? Seriously? Wow, and how did they even think this is a cool thing to print when it's so scathingly critical of the entire ability of their tradition to literally do anything? That's just amazing to me. Um, I'll stop there. Analio, as we've discussed before, uh, critiques your use of the term dark night to apply to the insight stages, and we mentioned that whether or not St. John uses the term dark night of the soul, he uses the term dark night, but not dark night of the soul. Analio concedes is, is a minor point, but one that he suggests uh, shows your <laughs> lack of, 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 of acquaintance with the, with the source texts. But another point he makes is that the main thrust in this article of why Analio is disagreeing with the use of dark night in this context is that, to quote, this is different from progress through the insight knowledges, which do not accord a role to God and require intellect, will, and memory rather than being based on faith only. Already the onset of such progress requires deconstructing the notion of a permanent soul, whose non-existence is confirmed with the arrival at stream entry. This prevents simply equating the path of contemplation taught by St. John with the scheme of insight knowledges taught by Buddha Gosha. So in other words, the doctrinal differences in view or language used to express the path and, and, and formulate the techniques of contemplation do not line up. So therefore, the territory cannot be the same. Yeah. And so it's a, again, it's an interesting argument. And then the question is, like, if we were to shift that from, I mean, from a religious point of view, he has plenty of legs to stand on there. From a doctrinal point of view, he has, he has a lot of foundation to stand on from a big discrepancy between the soteriological doctrines of the two traditions, one that one will merge with God and the other there, there is no permanent God or permanent soul, right? Is he's got plenty of legs to stand on from all those orthodox points of view. I give him his due. Of course, this was obvious to me and everybody else, whoever has gone into this territory. 
And then we would counter as the standard thing. This is sort of a, I mean, it's like cliche to even bother to go through this because it's the standard argument is yes, but um, these are just sort of the experiences are the experiences. And then both are sort of adding some conceptual constructed overlay right, of the capacity for construction. So you can put constructionism back on Biko and Nalio and say, maybe there is an underlying essentialism that people are going through that's perennialism, but all these people who are coming through these strict orthodox frames of Catholicism or early Buddhism, then they're adding on their conceptual overlay to a process that may be, you know, not necessarily quite either of those. And if you have super strong views that it must be a certain way, maybe that's what you you see now the, the we can get an essentialist versus constructionist arguments there and which is true and which is actually and how they even relate to experience and then there's the clinical argument of how those relate to may maybe underlying physiology or what techniques you would then use to help someone and then my experiment i would then propose as a scientist is let's take like a carmelite mystic in the dark night of the espiritu which is the preferred term he would want to use right for spirit dark night of the spirit not dark night of the soul we'll take a carmelite mystic in the dark night of the espiritu we'll take a theravadan early buddhist insight practitioner who's willing to deign to use the later buddhist maps of the, of the knowledges of suffering and fear and all of that and we'll and you know maybe take um, you know a modern fusion tradition practitioner who's on an insight retreat at like IMS or Spirit Rock, you know doing whatever these techniques are and how you think they relate. All who are in their dark night, which they equate this the same as the insight knowledges, and let's performance test them. Let's have them describe their experience phenomenologically. Let's see what kind of perceptual changes they have. Let's let's measure their ability to measure you know um, you know the scan them. Look at what parts of their brains are activated when they're having these experiences. And then we could prospectively try various conceptual frameworks, you know, diagnostic frameworks in a clinical context, and then management frameworks. Let's give them various management techniques, because each of the traditions would propose different remedies and insights and things that might then help progress that along in the, on the path of wisdom and see how those actually perform. So that's what I would like to do as a scientist, rather than, again, to expert opinion people going out with dogmatic texts. Um, uh, I would be more interested in actually practically for practitioners, for you, if you're listening to this, to know through longitudinal, you know, phenomenological trials and management trials and outcome studies, which frameworks are the most effective, which lead to the best or, or different outcomes, how do we compare those outcomes, and which of those would you as practitioners like, such that you hopefully ethically can make informed choices? Do these things lead to the dark night of the soul? Do they lead to the knowledges of suffering? Are they the same or different physiologically? And then if so, how do you handle that? And practically, how does that impact your life, your relationships, your function, your jobs? Those are all questions that I would love to do the science to actually answer in a modern contemporary context, because as much as we might dream of being early Buddhists, none of us are early Buddhists. We're all influenced by modern thought, by modern concepts, by modern doctrines. None of us, I think it's nearly impossible that any of us could actually do the experiment and purely be early Buddhists in the sense that culturally, dietarily, situationally, whatever people were back in the day, there, there's just no way. And so what we'd really be comparing is a modern person attempting to be an early Buddhist with a modern person attempting to be a medieval Carmelite mystic with a modern person actually using modern techniques and conceptual frameworks and concepts, for example, um, or these, you know, or whatever, um, doing those and see what the similarities and differences are and what the different outcomes are and what the different physiological structural centers and, and neurochemistry involved are. So that's what I would like. 
perhaps we'll deal then with whether the maps were secret or not, which is a point Analia raises, and then look at the clinical implications of this article and uh, of, of, the, of the debate going on here. You're quoted as saying, I must say that not telling practitioners about this territory from the beginning to give them a heads up as to what might happen is so extremely irresponsible and negligent that I just want to spit and scream at those, <laughs> at those who perpetuate this warped culture of secrecy. Analia goes on to make the point that actually this information has been widely made available. Uh, the only new uh, element is your own misinterpretation of the insight knowledges, which is to say the stages of the path. He also then says that, well, you say that these stages are experienceable by all sorts of people in all sorts of traditions and perhaps even in daily life under certain circumstances without any spiritual practice. To quote, if that had indeed been the case, it would hardly have been possible to keep them secret until now. Aha. Yes, and I hear him, except I will, it's luckily this is easy to push back on. So if you look in textbooks of emergency medicine, emergency psychiatry, or medical school textbooks, or the board criteria, or what are considered the core criteria for board examination of any of these mainstream clinical texts, you literally find none of this stuff. Zero. There is literally nothing. Um, furthermore, if you expand it out and include things like all the phenomenology of, that's found in books like, you know, uh, Spiritual Emergency or The Sturmly Search for the Self, um, or books like uh, Breaking Open, Finding a Way Through Spiritual Emergency, you literally find none of that. Nothing that is useful in the DSM-5. You find nothing that's useful in Rosen's or Tintinale's textbooks of emergency medicine. You will find nothing that's useful in any medical, mainstream medical school criteria I have, you know, or sorry, um, uh, not criteria, but a curriculum that I have ever heard of. They didn't teach me anything about this stuff. And still, you will find nothing in ICD-9. You won't find anything in ICD-10 or 11. These are the diagnostic and medical billing codes of the World Health Organization. Zero. There's nothing that's useful for this stuff at all, except the V6289 code. It was a spiritual problem, basically, that you will find as a modifier code, not even a diagnostic code, that you will find in the DSM that was gotten through by the remarkable doctors, uh, Lukoff, uh, Turner, and Liu, uh, who managed to get in 1% of this kind of technology, right, that acknowledges all the spiritual complexities that they wanted to get in. You will find almost none of the cool map technology you will find in Jack Corrin's Fields of Path with Heart. You will find none of the insight stages mentioned in any of these settings. Uh, if you can find me a mainstream psychotherapeutic school that's actually talking about any of this stuff, I, I would be delighted. You can find it in the transpersonal literature, but that is not in the mainstream. And the number of people who are being taught uh, mindfulness meditation, which if you're literally being mindfully paying attention to things come and go with equanimity in an open receptive way, I would love to hear him clearly differentiate how that is different from early Buddhist practice as he describes it. Like these are, this is one of the more fantastic bits of mental gymnastics he tried, attempts to pull off to say that because it's not early Buddhist, it can't lead to early Buddhist insight stages, even though they appear by description to be doing the exact same thing. Mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of walking, mindfulness of feelings, mindfulness of thoughts, mindfulness of mind states, mindfulness of bodily sensations. This is classic Buddhism, and this is also classical mindfulness. And yet you will not see the purported stages that the tradition of, you know, over 100 years of years seem to think um, this stuff, you know, led to as their data sets got larger and larger and their um, clinical phenomenology got better and better from my point of view. 
um, that it leads to. And so from an ethical point of view, I would like the, the risks, benefits, and alternatives clearly explained because it's, it's, it's an open secret that mindfulness made the sort of Faustian bargain when, when they introduced this stuff and they said, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna cut off the head and we're gonna cut off the tail and we're just gonna present sort of the middle. And the middle is you're just paying attention. It can't do anything bad. Right. And that was awesome as a gambit and it got it into the clinical mainstream. But the problem is, is more people do this stuff and then people actually go on insight retreats inspired by the cool things that happen from mindfulness practice as they get into actual insight stages where they can now see thoughts as thoughts and physical sensations as physical sensations and cause and effect and transients and start to get some benefit from all of those experiences for themselves and they want more and they start doing more of this stuff. Or they're on one of these unusually talented practitioners who even on low doses will get into deeper territory like across the arising and passing away and get into the, the Dukanyana stages, um, then uh, you know they should have had that explained to them that it can cause relationship disruption, as is mentioned in early Buddhism. It can cause you to become disgusted with your partners, as is mentioned in early Buddhism. It can cause fear, as is mentioned in plenty of Buddhism, uh, danger, renunciation, all of that stuff, which can be very disrupting for studies and all that. And that should be told to them. It can also cause awakening, which is not told to them. So really clearly fine for me in books like, you know, that wherever you go, there you are, mainstream books on mindfulness or any clinical medical manual or therapeutic text about the stages of awakening. Find that for me. You won't find it. You find it in the fringe transpersonal literature, but otherwise these still are almost entirely unknown, despite the fact that, yes, you can find these books for on Amazon and yes, you can download these books for free on the internet, but that doesn't mean they're known. It's like, you know, the philokalia, you can buy, you know, you can look at the philokalia, but how many doctors have read the philokalia describing Greek Orthodox, you know, mystical practices? Almost none, right? And so, you know, unless you happen to be a Greek Orthodox mystic at the same time. And so even though it is available, it's incredibly obscure and 100% not incorporated in the mainstream, which is what I hope to change. So one of the reasons I'm wanting to advocate for doing all the science I'm doing is actually build this up from the phenomenal, you know, ground up, do long-term phenomenological outcome studies, see if the patterns of maps you know, that we see back here have clinical utility, see if they're verifiable, see if Jack's maps, see if my maps, see if any of these maps are the, you know, the, the other people who are you know, adding to this territory, see you know, the Groff's maps, um, see how those actually, are, you know, are they reproducible or not? Are they clinically useful or not? And then how to language that. So again, Biko and Alio specifically told me, stop using insight stage terms and I've got no problem with clinical patterns that have value. Well, okay, but um, you know his 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 insistence that we use no words from the past. Maybe that's valuable for incorporating it into clinical practice. But I would leave it to clinicians and medical bodies and medical boards to see what kind of language they actually want to use um, to describe the phenomenology and give them as adults the right to choose that without having to, you know, just avoid terms like that because it annoyed some orthodox monk. On the one hand, if these stages are so perennial that they even writings of St. John of the Cross. How can it be then that they're so absent from this mainstream literature? How can such a perennial set of experiences be so niche? Yeah, so that's a good question. I'm trying to find the book. So the varieties of William, uh, the varieties of religious experience by William James actually described a ton of this stuff. Uh, the highs, the lows, the weird, some of the energetic stuff, the mood stuff, the, the evangelism, the, the, the real transformations of character, the spiritual challenges. And he was a Harvard psychiatrist. And this is 1902 or so when he gave these lectures in Scotland, actually, and they were recorded 1901, 1902, somewhere in there. 
And 120 years later, that even though it's a Harvard psychiatrist, is still not incorporated. And that's an extreme fascination with materialism that the Enlightenment era, ironically enough, named uh, gave you know scientific materialism and that pathways uh, of thought such that none of this stuff is actually considered viable science for years. You know, like internal experience was basically excluded from psychiatry for years during the behavioralist era. If you you know look at psychiatry, you know during the era of B.F. Skinner and the behavioralists, like talking about inner experience was just considered ridiculous. They were all interested in outcome studies and how do you manipulate people and society to you know do what you want them to do. Um, and even Freud was incredibly dismissive of religious experience in terms of delusion. And if you watch documentaries, uh, you know, such as the Century of the Self, it will explain the incredible dominance of both materialism and Freud, uh, you know, with regard to influencing mainstream culture and mainstream science and what was clinically acceptable. And so there, there, this is a long discussion, but there's there's a, a vast history of very powerful cultural forces that basically said we're not going there. And so, despite 120 years ago, you know, William James, the unbelievably well describing this, all totally shut out, or the 60s with Abraham Maslow studying peak peak spiritual experiences, all shut out, nothing in mainstream textbooks, all shut down, or in the 60s and 70s with the psychedelic literature, or the you know the 70s to 80s with the trans, you know the you know, the TM literature, not all of this great science, but they shut all that out. And then the Gross, the spiritual emergency literature and the transpersonal literature, literally 100% shut out. There's fucking nothing in the mainstream medical textbooks. And so it's not just that the stages of insight didn't penetrate, none of it penetrated because they shut it all out because the APA and the mainstream boards were just not going to go there. But to be fair, the the other side, the spiritual side, never did the big, expensive, longitudinal science that would qualify for the level of evidence quality that a lot of these places would need. And so what I'm trying literally to do now, there's now the 50-person team that I've been kind enough, uh, sorry, uh, sorry, that has been kind enough to include me within its ranks, and we've all found each other. Um, uh, that we're trying to actually, you know, get the money, raise the money, raise the literally tens to hundreds of millions of dollars it will take to do levels of science that might mainstream clinical, um, uh, you know, bodies and uh, boards and all of those require to enter their canon. Nobody's done it yet, and so I'm now trying to figure out how we can all do this, and we're all trying to figure this out together. And so that's the goal. And so unfortunately, from my point of view, articles like Analio are just setting us back literally millennia um, in that quest, uh, you know, trying to set us back 2,500 years in the quest to actually incorporate what I think is some of the most genius, amazing attentional physiology that Buddhism shines for, like is known for, is incredible for, which is why people think of it as a science of mind. Not that it's always scientific, but it has some very scientific phenomenological elements. And it's ironic in the extreme that someone who so loves Buddhism, from my point of view, would work so hard to disparage what I think are some of its coolest clinical contributions and potentials to be incorporated um, in some modified and modernized and clinically validated way into uh, our clinical knowledge of the development of attention itself, which I think is critical as these practices are now scaling. Millions of people are doing this stuff now. And the, the clinical world is vastly behind in terms of understanding the strange effects that can result from these sorts of practices. And so I think it's essential that we go in a totally different direction from what Biko Nalio is saying and actually really do the science. And it's weird, he does call for the science at some point to be fair, but he also kind of doesn't, it's, it's ironic. 
you mentioned a mental gymnastics uh, as to how it is that Analyo differentiates between mindfulness and early Buddhism and, and the, the consequential effects. And one of the reasons is, of course, that this can be read in, in several of Analyo's uh, articles, including, in fact, the one that we're discussing here, that the actual fundamental technique of early Buddhism is a more receptive kind of technique. And mindfulness this, is extremely receptive. Well, my point anyway is this, that we can be in danger of, of seeing mindfulness meditation as a sort of panacea that can fix all things. Uh, we could also be in danger of uh, going too much in the other direction and overemphasizing its possible negative side effects. And that if you're listened to in the academic literature, you might actually contribute to that pendulum swinging too much in the other direction. People may, if informed by you, be encouraged to, rather than under-report, over-report their negative experiences to script themselves, dramatize, or construct these sorts of experiences. To quote him, in the end, all this points to the need to base assessments, be these positive or negative, on sound academic research rather than on unsubstantiated claims. And there we agree. And the notion to the degree to which these things are unsubstantiated when there's literally thousands of posts and um, on the web, not only on the Dharma Overground site, but on stream entry subreddit and plenty of other sites that talk about the stuff, Tau Bums, and, and there's a whole bunch of them, right? You, so it's not just me. Um, <clears throat> you can find plenty of reports of this. So, so it is substantiated, it's just the quality of evidence. And so what I would say is that if let's all work together to do the honest science and the honest science would be we, we throw off all of our objections, doctrinal, orthodox, textual. We literally just follow people forward doing different techniques in different traditions straightforwardly. We see what the outcomes are, good and bad, we see what proportion of people have these outcomes. We get actual data on this that is data-driven with big outcome, with big trials, such that there's no longer a risk that we're over-exaggerating the, the, the benefits or under-exaggerating or over-exaggerating the downsides or under-exaggerating the benefits, as weirdly enough, mindfulness actually does, because they cut off the top as well. They, they underplay the degree to which this can actually transform consciousness. And so... Um, from my point of view, and what the the high end of the range is, they they don't really describe that most of the time as a tradition because that's also too weird for mainstream medicine, right? And so I would say, let's all join together and and stop arguing amongst ourselves. And if you truly want that kind of data that has no exaggeration and is and as clear a read as we can get, let's all work together to raise the money to do the honest science, to do the open science. So we're looking at our methods and our data, and everybody can see that. And we do this properly, which also has not been done. So that hasn't been done. And I would, if that's what he wants, I agree that's what I want. And to move out of the realm of expert opinion and people just arguing about what their favorite text is um, and why, and instead uh, make this on much firmer ground such that mindfulness can have the reasonable ethical conversation knowing it's properly saying these are the actual risks, benefits, and alternatives. This is actually the chances you might cross into real insight territory. This is actually the chances you might wake up. This is actually the chances you might just feel a little bit better and deal with your pain better or whatever it is. And that we we have data and numbers on those because right now he doesn't have numbers. I don't have numbers. I admit that freely. Let's get some numbers. And to get some numbers, that's going to cost. And uh, so those of you who are interested in solving this debate once and for all, we would love to talk with you at the eprc.org. That's where we hope to do the very ontologically neutral, non-tradition associated science. I'm willing to throw out all of my priors um, and just uh, do 
do the honest assessment and let's see what falls out of honest data analysis and do that in an open, transparent, highly ethical, um, scientifically valid way. Let me ask you this question. It seems we've come to the end of the time here of your response to this article. I'm just curious, personally and professionally, what, if any, uh, the consequences of this article have been? Interesting. Uh, you know, I'm not a professional anymore, so I'm retired. So I'm um, everything I'm doing is volunteer. I'm not practicing as a physician anymore. So I don't actually have a profession in that sense. Um, it's been very interesting to see the wide range of reactions. Clearly, some communities were very, rah, rah, Daniel's been taken down. Excellent. And they were very excited that he wrote this article, very happy with the work. I had friends who actually went to IMS and said people were um, volunteering out of nowhere to give them copies of this article to discredit me. And, and so that's sort of disheartening to hear. Um, but uh, on, in other ways, people have been like, wow, the stages of insight. Well, maybe there is something there because it's raised a lot of questions. Like, why does he think all of these things? Because curiously enough, he actually gets some of my best quotes in there. Um, and uh, and so I think that it spurred debate is good. That it's hopefully will will get let people ac appreciate the degree to which there is discussion about this and robust discussion. I think robust discussion is important, and it's good that various voices get their time and their due. So that Biko Nalio had a place to air his point of view. That I hopefully have a pl places to air mine. And if that leads to us recognizing the limits of the state of the art, which is a mix of expert opinion, you know, uh, case series, you know, based on our own experiences, and uh, whatever our favorite texts are, then um, hopefully that will provide an impetus to move forward on stronger clinical ground and really do the science. And so that's what I'm looking forward to as an opportunity to have a continued conversation, hopefully that has more data to back it up. Um, but uh, it's also caused me to spend a lot of time going back through the texts he's talked about, not that I hadn't been through them plenty of times before. It's worth knowing, by the way, none of his arguments are new. So since I first came out with my book, people have been putting his arguments out there. He writes as if like nobody's ever said any of this stuff. But if you go back to you know, you know, the Western Buddhist order form or whatever it is, and albums and look back at you know flame wars back in the late 90s and early 2000s on forums assuming you can still find these things like people were saying the same stuff analio is it's not new but now i think we actually have an opportunity hopefully big enough groups of people who are interested in this and enough of a clinical use case to to then do the science that we weren't able to do then uh, because there wasn't enough interest enough money enough people enough impetus enough call for it or need for it because mindfulness wasn't as big but now it is. And so I think doing this right and properly, hopefully, is one of the good things that will come out of this and, and an opportunity for people to hear multiple points of view on very interesting topics and hopefully deepen their own spiritual practice based on this somehow and not just uh, contract into various camps of like, oh, Daniel or oh, Analio, but instead do the experiment for themselves and see what's useful. Um, and, you know, it may be that lots of people find Biko and Elia's point of view functionally useful for their lives. And if that's so, excellent. Uh, you know, functional utility is what I care about more than being right. Um, so if, if his work is providing benefit, great. If my provi work provides benefit, great. If better work that comes out of it provides benefit, even more great. Daniel Ingram, thank you very much. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.